aerospace and, and uh, aviation, from science and engineering, operations, training, uh, the medical aspects of, of flight, the legal aspects and regulation of flight and so on. We're also a professional engineering institution, so we can award chartered engineers, and um, we are promoting professionalism in individuals and in organizations. And, and thirdly, we're a charity, and a lot of that charitable activity is to do with, uh, with careers and education. Now, I cannot think of a more exciting time to be starting on a career in aviation and aerospace. Uh, I joined the Air Force in 1962, which is an awfully long time ago. Uh, had a full career in that, then got involved in, uh, in research and development. And I saw constant change all the way through my, my career. And the pace of change is increasing. Last year, as I'm sure everybody in the room knows, the Rosetta, Pro, the Rosetta spacecraft launched a, a small uh, lander, filet, to touch down on a comet. Humankind reached out and touched a comet for the first time. That was an incredible technical achievement. And that technology, possibly in the future, will be advanced and developed to enable us to divert a comet which might be threatening the Earth. Not a huge chance, but there is a possibility. And avoid us becoming extinct like the dinosaurs. And more generally, I cannot think of a challenge that's facing humankind where the solution to that challenge isn't going to involve technology and engineering in some form and as a key involvement. I'd like to thank Raytheon UK very much for, for supporting this day and all they're doing. And we here are very excited that uh, Raytheon will be promoting their quadrocopter challenge today. Uh, and finally, I would like to uh, uh, welcome two particular guests. Uh, in addition to the fantastic speaker program, I'd like you to welcome special guests Tracy Curtis-Taylor, uh, whose solo flight across Africa in a vintage biplane was recently shown on BBC Four, and BBC uh, science presenter Dallas Campbell, whose credits include Stargazing Live and Bangos the Theory. They're with us for the whole day, and they're going to be joining in the Q&A this afternoon. So that's enough for me. Um, please make the most of the day. There'll be all sorts of opportunities to ask questions and to get engaged. And I would now like to introduce the uh, keynote speaker, who's Katrina Roche from Raytheon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I must admit it's really great to see so many people here today. It's, uh, it's one of the things we feel really passionately about as an organization, the, the desire to understand and learn some of these technologies and feel the same passion that we feel every time we look at something new and innovative and think, goodness, what could that be? The, the buzz you get from that type of pleasure and enjoyment in your everyday job just can't be surpassed. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to talk forever because um, the person who goes first, everyone is waiting for the next load to come through. 
Uh, I'm going to give you a, a very brief um, snapshot about me and uh, the role that I play within the organisation. And I'm going to talk a little bit about our organisation and how we um, particularly are interested in innovation, our history of innovation, and how we, how we keep that and how we keep trying to strive towards that uh, as we look towards the future. So um, I, it says on there that I'm the CIO, that's the Chief Information Officer for the organisation um, for Raytheon UK. That means I worry about everything to do with uh, IT systems and technology and security of our environment. It's very wide-ranging. I didn't think I would be doing that when I was probably sat in audiences like this at your age. Um, I don't know that I had certainty about what my career was going to have ahead of me. Um, and I, I almost landed into something like this by accident. Um, I studied science topics when I was uh, doing my A-levels, and I went off to university to do a maths degree. Uh, and if you had asked me at any point through that cycle, what are you going to end up doing as a career, I'm not sure I would have given you 100% certainty. I just knew that I, I was doing things I was interested in, and I, I thought that there was opportunity, um, but I hadn't actually set my mind onto quite what that was going to be. Um, and I, I started working first for a Ford Motor Company, um, and I was going there to do operational research, which is the study of how things work, the simulations, building models for explaining how things actually operate. Uh, I, did, I did do a little bit of that, but I ended up being lured into the IT department, where I found both skills were absolutely fascinating and really good. I could, I could understand the model and, and the theory of what I was looking at. I could see past the noise of what I might be looking at but it was really great to actually at the end of the day deliver the thing that was going to be the answer so um, I worked my way through a multitude of different organizations I'm currently in uh, Raytheon which is obviously in an aerospace defense company but I have worked in automotive manufacturing industries I've worked in software industries technology industries worked on the Channel Tunnel project so if you bought your ticket to go to France on the train I was one of the first people writing the code for that and I've worked for companies like EMI Music, very different technology, but completely different business. Um, but I've, I've ended up now at, uh, at Raytheon. I've been here nearly three years. It's been absolutely fascinating. Every day I learn something new. Every day I'm slightly stunned and amazed by what our engineers can do. And I, I look at them and think, goodness, wow, what next? That's really interesting. So... Um, I'm not here just as the CIO. Uh, just over about nine months ago, I became the lead for the Innovation Network for Raytheon UK. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that as I go through this talk. Uh, but for me, it was really fascinating because for the first time, I was starting to marry together um, previous experience building products in telecommunication industries and working as a CIO and understanding IT and adding into that mix all the stuff that we make as, as a company and, and what that does for other people and how it helps them. And it's a great, fascinating mix. If I didn't have a full-time job as a CIO, I spent all my time worrying about the innovation network. It's just a, a, a really interesting place to be. So let me talk to you a little bit about Raytheon. Um, we've been in existence for more than 100 years. The scope of what we do goes from information superiority solutions, air traffic management systems, cyber intelligence, missile systems, power solutions, you name it, we've probably at some point looked at it, done something with it, or worked with other people in order to make the most of it. We uh, operate uh, mostly from the UK, but we work all across the, the world. 
We have um, a parent company in the US as well that we work with extensively. And the, the strength of the skills across the whole organisation are, are really interesting. As I said to you, I, I don't know what I'm going to learn that we also do the next day. It can be really, really good. So um, one of the things that we take very seriously and we really want to encourage is the way that, that more and more people should choose to come into industries like this, should want to study topics like engineering, want to study maths. I'm personally quite a maths-keen person, but, you know, want to study engineering, want to understand technology. Everything we do right now, you know, you you can't imagine your lives, I would imagine, without certain parts of technology. But but I remember a long time ago, the first time Bluetooth started to appear, and people were going, this looks really interesting, I wonder what we'll do with it. And, And now you just wouldn't think twice, would you? You know what Bluetooth does, you know how you use it. But sometimes when you embark on these journeys, you don't always know what the technology is going to give you. You don't know what the idea is going to give you, and it can be a real path of discovery. I've worked on products in the past where we were really sure, in in other organisations and other industries, we knew why we were building those products. We knew what it was going to be. We knew the market. We were sure that was the right product. As we started to sell it, people bought it for a completely different reason. Slightly taken aback, we're looking at it going, why? Why are they doing that? And actually, what had happened is we had an idea... We'd put out our idea. Other people had come along with other ideas. And they'd added to that, and they were making something completely different with it. And the way that technology is going at the moment, you you would not think twice about posting your opinions, adding your ideas to somebody else's. The speed at which innovation and change can happen now is just accelerating all the time. The way in which we look at innovation and add and create new ideas, more and more of those get added in. More people can get involved. And as we look at our own organisation, we are all the time trying to find more ways in which we can make that a reality. Um, Within the the company, we have quite a few different schemes. I've talked a little bit about the innovation network. That's something that we worry about very much internally. We have externally focused things as well. Uh, We are very keen on supporting STEM. Um, We are very keen on supporting our graduates, and uh, one of them is here today to talk to you a little bit in a minute. And we are very keen on working with our apprentices and bringing them through our organisation and, uh, and helping them on their journey and wherever they might decide to go next. And uh, both Luke and Joshua are here to talk to you as well about that journey today. So our heritage, as I said, it goes back more than 100 years. We, we have done everything from day one, from radios, oscilloscopes, televisions, radar systems, air traffic control systems, semiconductors cyber, intelligence, information management. It just goes on and on and on. And the world is changing. We're changing with it as we go along that journey. So with all that history, so much history of innovation, the the question is, well, why do we specifically have an innovation champions network? Well, that's because innovation itself is always changing. I spoke to you about the way in which people get together, the way they collaborate, the way that they connect ideas, the way that that operates within the outer world and also with inside a company. And so we look at the innovation network and we're going, well, what should that be next? We started it last year. We had great ideas coming through. Nearly 50-odd really unique ideas came from the people who work in our business on top of all the stuff that they do just for their job. And we looked at that, and it's great. Many of those were taking through to, to the next stage. But part of innovation is you just don't know where that's going to go. Some of it will succeed. Some of it won't succeed. 
um, knowing that some of it will not succeed the first time or the tenth time or the hundredth time is one of those journeys of exploration and innovation that, that you go down. Um, so, so when we look at the innovation network, we are very keen to find new ways of promoting it and encouraging the tradition of innovation. I know that sounds like a little, a little back to front, but that desire to keep going, that desire to keep learning is very important. We want to encourage challenge and change, and the guys are going to talk to you a little bit about the quadcopter challenge, which is something that, although it's working externally to the company, it's involving many parts of our organisation, and everybody is getting something new out of the experience. So I put up here a couple of things about innovation. People talk about innovation. It's really great to label something. It's a human requirement. You have something and you go, I want to label that or identify it or understand it in some way. So we have a thing called innovation. We also have invention. What's the big difference? So quite a fine line in many cases. You can have a great invention that may or may not be massively innovative. You can have an innovative idea that leads to a really small invention. You can have big ideas, you can have small ideas, you can have the whole link of ideas, you can look at things differently, you can look at a different perspective. You'll hear the word disruption used a lot at the moment, just like you'll hear big data, and you'll hear a whole load of things, and there are ways people try and gather, often not new ideas, but ways in which we approach stuff together and go, this is what we're going to do. But innovation is, is, to us, extremely important. It's how we encourage and how we challenge. It's about not being afraid. It's about having some courage, knowing you might be wrong, knowing you might be wrong quite a few times before you get it right. That's okay. But it's quite hard as a business, as a commercial business, to say, how much time do you spend on stuff like that? Well, as much as you can. Probably not as much as you need, but as much as you can. Um, so I put up here a whole different, did a load of different ideas. Disruptive gets used a lot. People think it has to be an obviously useful thing. Not always. As I said to you, I've worked on things that were used for a completely different purpose. And when people talk about innovation, you often see symbols like that, the, the light bulb moment, the big flash of inspiration. You do get some like that, but you also get lots of hard slog and lots of ideas and lots of different ways of doing things. And uh, the whole point is to have cultures that encourage that and make it viewed as successful to be part of something and want to be part of it. So it matters to us, it matters to everybody who does it. It's a world of endless possibilities, unexpected connections, lots of opportunity, competitive advantage, of course. It can be really good fun. It's interesting. It attracts others to join in. Things that make other people want to be part of it and want to join in are always great. And when you succeed, it feels really good. seem to have lost my clicker at the key moment. Oh, there we go. So um, specifically here today, we're here because you're all here to understand a little bit more about careers and about opportunities and why this type of industry and why engineering. Um, I put up a whole raft of the things that we play with, do, understand, provide. They have to be mission assured. They have to be great. They have to be robust. Um, as you look across our organisation, people come from different disciplines. They have come into our organisation through different routes. They are continuing to learn within the organisation. Um, and people have changed direction as they've gone along and still ended up somewhere new. If, if I look at my own team within the IT function, I have people who have done many other different jobs who are now sitting in my organisation doing something new and something very different. Skills are often transferable. It's knowing that they're the skills which are great. There's a real 
shortage of people out there available right now for me to hire into my organisation. I find it difficult to find people with some of the skills that we're talking about you learning here in terms of pursuing the STEM subjects and engineering and maths in particular. So with that, I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to pass on to our next person, which is Mike. And Mike's going to talk to you a little bit about our graduate scheme for, and specifically about engineering and some of the, uh, the challenges and the activities that we do. So welcome and uh, thank you very much. Right, so uh, my name's Mike Hinge. I'm a first-year graduate on the Raytheon Graduate Leadership Development Programme, and I've been asked to talk to you a little bit about sort of the careers at Raytheon and sort of the, some of the stuff we're doing in terms of innovation. But let's start off with, firstly, what made me want to go into a career at Raytheon as opposed to finance, like everybody else with technical or mathematical degrees was doing at the time. And that was a story which actually was briefly touched on by uh, Katrina's timeline, but... So back in the 40s, there was a severe problem, obviously, in the middle of the Second World War, which was Allied shipping was being devastated, crossing the Atlantic. And effectively, there was one way that they could really track down the U-boats, which was centimetre radar, radar that was small enough to be mounted on ships and aircraft and accurate enough to detect a U-boat periscope poking above the water, lining up for a shot. And the technical challenge was solved by some very clever inventors in Britain working on developing this. But the physical challenge of making it was very, very difficult. They needed to produce thousands of these things very, very quickly to a very high standard. And companies, particularly Raytheon, which were a radio company at the time, suddenly realized we could do this. And so they moved wholesale, just like car companies moved into making aircraft and tanks. Companies like Raytheon... presumably sorting out this clicker here. But companies like Raytheon moved wholesale into providing something that saved all of us and led to a completely different change in our way of life. So I'd say not always in a military application, but technology has the potential in the way that crops have been developed and the way that the internet has changed our lives to really push and move on the whole of society. So I wanted to do something a little bit more hands-on and leading to some... Well, something a little bit more real. So, the leadership program itself, it's based around two things. Primarily, rotations. So the idea that you're being put into different functions and rotated every six months to get experience all the way around the company, as well as exposure within it. So there's always a slight tension in terms of you've got your day job actually trying to do useful things, but fundamentally you're there in the function to get some experience in each location so at the end, to say in five years, you might be working in something completely different, but you understand a little bit about what each part of the company is doing, so you can liaise with people working there. You've got good contacts, you've got good exposure, you've got good knowledge, and you can really hopefully be an asset and lead within the company with the knowledge you've got. So, and part of our training is all kinds of things that uh, the company puts us through. So in the top left, events like this, where we're trying to talk to people about our experiences in the company, Etc. Etc. Ones in the middle is uh, so that's one where we go to schools which are needing a project. They have to say, for example, have a brief in terms of like building a. I believe that was a, some kind of toy for the children. So they have a day to plan, source the materials, 
build it, etc., as a simple task. And the top right one is one that I've personally experienced, and that was so a two-day-long uh, course we were sent to in the Lake District where we were put through a series of challenges over and over again that were designed to be very difficult in terms of physically, but difficult also mentally in terms of rapid-fire planning, working as a team, and also dealing with situations when everything goes to hell. So that particular one was we were in groups of four, put in two canoes, so two to a canoe, and then sailed out or rode out to the middle of Lake Windermere and capsized. We had to recover. And this was so just early spring, and it was brutally cold. So the first interesting thing was we had a lovely plan, and then when we all capsized and were chucked in the water, immediately one of the group went into cold shock and was completely out of action. So we had to try and work it on with three people and sort of managing her and making sure she was going to be okay and, like, other things. There was a safety boat there in terms of she was never in danger. But just in terms of the plan we had when we started, trying to get... Blimey. Apologies. I will move that away so I don't whack it again. Trying to keep the plan actually moving forwards when real-life situations start interacting with it. So some of the things I've done... So, for, for instance, there's all the projects. So working on everything from radar to the guidance system on missiles to power and control, which is about to be a very big thing. So that is, so say, for example, the new aircraft needs very, very uh, up-to-date and very accurate power distribution, so moving the electrical systems around the aircraft in real time, and also very, very accurate sensing. So various things that Raytheon produces, such as chips that work at extremely high temperatures and can be put inside the engine itself, will lead to far more efficient aircraft, far more accurate aircraft, and far better electrical systems. And that is one of the um, many uh, products that we've developed through actually collaboration with universities that could be hugely big in the future. And the implications of that, to say, for example, a chip that functions very effectively at high temperatures, we still don't know all the implications of that, and they're just opening up. So other things I've done, so supporting the comms team, so when the buyers go out, and or the, sorry, the sellers and the BD team go out, they have briefs, and they're talking about the technical equipment. So I've written up briefs, chatted to engineers, sort of got the, over, the technical overview, so if a customer asks certain questions, they can be covered, and various things like that. So it's not purely design and development, it's also explaining technology and making sure everyone understands it. And the last thing that the company's very big on is something called Six Sigma. So it's a, it's a continuous improvement process, the idea that everyone in the company has the responsibility to be improving something. So the idea is you find a process, you try and target it, improve it, etc., try and assess it and break it down scientifically and rebuild it up. So when you leave a function, it will be better than when you start it. And it's normally a small thing. It could be, for instance, my one was uh, in the manufacturing there was overtime going through due to an error in a code. So overtime was being paid when it shouldn't be, so we had to go and, you know, people coming in and saying, we're being paid too much overtime, we're trying to work it out. So just a simple working through the process, why it was being incorrectly entered, and then working through the code fix on their system end, trying to work out why it was populating. Very simple fix, save the company something like £21,000 a year. So little things like that, you can just chip away and improve the company continuously. It's very good, and that's really built into the culture at Raytheon. Everyone has to do this. So the next thing I've been asked to talk about is something that we've been doing with schools. So this is called the Quadcopter Challenge, but the idea with this is is we're going into schools uh, year 9 and year 10. Year 11s are obviously busy with their GCSEs, and 
designing and building a quadcopter, which will then be entered into various challenges and will compete against other schools and with the ultimate aim of, say, winning a prize and uh, possibly further upgrades in the future. So the quadcopter is a very interesting thing in that it has pretty much all parts of the engineering profession loaded into it in terms of, at a very basic level, it's just an airfix kit you slot together. Just do up some screws, do some soldering, program it a little bit, and off it goes. But when you look a bit deeper, there's all kinds of things. So, for instance, the arms. We're now into compression and tension, the loading, the strength and the stress. So the teams can use the factory standard arms. However, they're encouraged to make their own to save weight, and there'll be points at the end for uh, design and innovation. So they've got to assess, right, what can we build it out of in terms of how heavy is it going to be? But then also, if we crash, is that going to be an issue? Then we've got the aerodynamics of the rotors. So you get all kinds of interactions with the air. In terms of if you descend too fast, you can fall into your own um, wake, and you, the, it can be sucked down just like a helicopter, so they have to think about the interactions there. So you're talking about the Bernoulli principle, modelling of lift, all kinds of things to do with the airflow. Then you've got the actual electronics, the programming, soldering, all kinds of little things. So it's designed to say... If the students want to look at it, oh, it's just a fun challenge in terms of we get to fly a quadcopter around, that's fine. But also at the same time, often without even realising it, like all the good science, you're learning about all kinds of principles, Newton's laws, all kinds of things that make that actually work. And we've got a semi-finished model of this upstairs in terms of showing you what one of these kits look like. They're rather impressive. And on the day, we're going to be doing all kinds of challenge uh, challenges, for instance... Uh, just simple speed trials, a slalom with poles they have to loop between, trying to pick up objects and drop them with precision, precision hovering, so hovering very low to the ground but not touching in several spots, things like that. And interestingly, the BBC is pursuing its own scheme, uh, or own programme rather, called Airheads, that is going to be doing things like this, where each week a team has to build and use a quadcopter for all kinds of different applications. They'll be given a challenge, and they're hopefully going to be getting involved with us uh, in, in this challenge. So, for instance, quadcopters are another thing where we don't really know where they're going to go. So at the moment, they're basically curiosities, toys, in terms of they sometimes have cameras mounted on. You can like throw them out your car and use it to see where the traffic is if you're stuck in a jam, things like that. But there's all kinds of very interesting applications that are going forward. So say, for instance, the Amazon drone was a thought. It may be unworkable. Another thought, which was rather interesting but possibly unworkable too, was delivering defibrillators to people. In terms of if somebody has a heart attack, you could get a defibrillator kit out to them while the paramedics were arriving, things like that. And so there's also a very interesting thing about quadcopters, which is the tech behind them on the right here is these micro, uh, microelectromechanical systems which are pioneered by mobile phones. So the advances in mobile phone technology in terms of miniature accelerometers, miniature gyroscopes, miniature electronics is what's really driving all the parts and the low-cost nature of the quadcopters on the left. So quite a lot of the parts that go into that circuit board are just surplus from Apple phones, but allow all kinds of people now, because of the economies of scale and the sheer rates of production and their falling costs, to make a quite complicated machine that can have an advanced autopilot. So... Because of this very cheap and low-level nature, the innovation in quadcopters is really happening in the civilian level, just people playing around with them. Say, for instance, a load of bike riders programmed a program where it would follow them as they were cycling along. 
And so you'd have an automatic cameraman, effectively, flying above you. But taken to, an extri- or taken to another application, you could then use that as sort of a drone that would fly around and look out for you, trying to spot things around you. So you could use it in terms of search teams trying to find people. You could do it for all kinds of stuff with these algorithms that are designed to track and follow people. So the idea being that the students we are teaching in terms of the quadcopter and learning to build them, hopefully in the future, they could be doing something and coming up with ideas for how these quadcopters could be used in the future. So I'd like to summarise quickly with a quote. Does anyone know who this quote's from? So it's Professor Brian Cox, at least where I got it. Close. Um, Maybe, I don't know to be fair if it was original, but um, I like this one in terms of this sums up what makes science science for me. In terms of science is different to all other systems of thought because you don't need faith in it. You can check it works. So this mindset, the idea of going out into your business and checking things and making sure to see why is that the case? How do we know this? Can we change it? Can we improve it? Why does that work? That is extremely valuable in a career, and never underestimate how important that is and how useful that is, whatever you do. So I'd say having a technology mindset is a very good thing. Try and keep it alive, and good luck in your careers. Welcome back, everybody, and um, hopefully everyone managed to get at least something to drink and uh, fortify themselves, ready for the the second half of the morning. So I've got a great deal of pleasure to invite up next uh, two members of our apprenticeship scheme. Uh, Both Luke and Joshua um, have been booking their way through that process. They're here to share with you uh, some of their experiences and uh, and hopefully uh, inspire you to want to do something very similar. Would you like to come up, guys? Hello everybody, um, I'm Luke Jones, this is Josh. Uh, one of the innovation schemes uh, that has been talked about today is obviously apprenticeships. Um, myself, I come straight from school at the age of 16 with my GCSEs and come straight into this type of industry. Um, in school I studied uh, things like electrical uh, studies where I had to build an alarm uh, system. Uh, I also did computer-aided design, which I, I learned how to uh, build things from nothing and then compose them together. So it's, well, it, in my time, it was a, a little lamp that you had to make. Um, with these skills, I then looked into going into apprenticeships, uh, obviously into practical sides of stuff, such as, well, I applied for JCB, Hawker Beechcraft, and obviously, in the end, I come to Raytheon. Um Josh is here to tell you his story. So, same as Luke, I came straight from school, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had engineering uh, in the blood, um, and especially aviation. Coming out of school with GCSEs, um, fairly high grades, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. Um, going on to the next slide, there's a certain process of what your like, position you're in now. And there's seven pathways that you can take. Obviously, you go through school in primary and secondary. 
And then you, you have this choice to make, whether you go on to further education, which is a sixth form, go into college, a full-time job, wherever it would be, retail or anything like that, or an apprenticeship. Um, obviously, sixth form has led to uni, um, and personally, that's what I thought I wanted to do, you know, go on to university and hopefully do aeronautical engineering at university. I did one year at AS sixth form, and I didn't like it at all. Yeah, I had uh, my friends and everything, but personally, that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't feel myself progressing um, in my career that I wanted to do. So from sixth form, I pretty much dropped out at AS level, and I, went, uh, I started college, um, level three in aeronautical engineering, thinking that that's the pathway I should take, whilst also applying for a different apprenticeships from the likes of Airbus, Raytheon, Hawker Beechcraft. I did Unilever as well. Um, had the interviews for them all, and thankfully I got one at Raytheon. So this is the position that you're in now I was in three years ago, because this time in September I'll be coming out as a fully qualified mechanical engineer, which is pretty scary that I'll be signing off my own work and watch my an aircraft fly with my work done on it what you're what you're doing now is planning your future and i personally think that apprenticeship is the way forward yes you can go into uni and yes you can go into sixth form whatever you want to do but um the apprenticeship offers you to learn what you like to do you in a totally different environment you're in an adult working environment which obviously your professional skills and your professional manner comes out because i was quite a shy and timid person i, I can't believe i'm stood up here today because i'm extremely nervous person but the apprenticeship scheme being involved around adults and that has really portrayed my professional um, manner so obviously with apprenticeships especially in aeronautical engineering it's very you know well paid not like um, any other apprenticeships that you may think and also you're learning on the job whilst also gaining qualifications so the qualifications that we've been given the chance to do are a level 3 MVQ in aeronautical engineering and also a national diploma in aeronautical engineering. The course is the day release course, so that does mean we'd go to college one day a week, um, but spending our first year full-time in college doing craft apprenticeship, which coincides with the Airbus programme as well. So we do work closely with the Airbus group, um, and then the second and third year is also work-based, and also it's one day in college as well, doing the academic side of the aeronautical engineering. Raytheon have given us great opportunities um, from day one they've always been the first intake that Raytheon have done in over 40 years I don't know, I don't know when the last apprentices they took on um, but they, they thought that it's time to there's a gap in the, in, in the industry where the young people aren't following up and you sat here today hopefully you fill this gap in from the, uh, the older generation who would love to pass their knowledge down to you that's what we're getting today so personally I think Apprenticeships is the way forward. Um, if you personally want to go to university, that's that's your choice, because university is also a great, op you know, gives you great opportunity when you come out with a higher qualification um, to better yourself and your company. So I'm going to hand back over to Luke, who's going to discuss some of the opportunities that we've been given. Yes. Uh, some of the opportunities we've been given uh, whilst working for Athen is we've gone on a lot of. Uh, trips with the company. As you can see here, we come down uh, in 2014 to do a rocket rocket challenge where we had to design a type of rocket, look at the kind of angle that you want to fire the rocket off to try and get the furthest, the highest distance. Um, it was a competition, as you can see, with other companies such as Rolls-Royce. 
Airbus, um, and many more. Uh, we ended up coming third in that competition, um, but this is just one of many uh, trips that we've been on. We've also been to um, South Wales to co uh, compete in many competitions, such as World Skills, where you get put in a selected team against other companies to do practical written tests um, basically see where you come. We've also uh, taken part in Farm Bear Show, which was great experience as we got to have a look at a lot of different companies, see what they got, well, they offer to Aeronautical Society, uh, such as Rolls-Royce, the engines they build. Um, we had a look at Gamma, type of uh, equipment that they make, and learnt a lot. Obviously, that's the other apprentice that joined our year, um, Hayley Keeley. She come quite high in the... Um, well, she progressed to the second round. There's three rounds there, are, and the third round, if you get far enough, you'd travel, obviously, to places like Brazil, America, to compete against other other companies and uh, around the world. Uh, we've got to meet a lot of important people, such as the Secretary of State in Wales. Uh, as you can see, there's five of our apprentices. Uh, there's my, myself, Josh, Haley, and then the other two apprentices were taken on the year after us, and that's Jack and Will. Um, obviously, there's the model of the aircraft that we work on, which is the Sentinel. Uh, when we come out of our time, obviously, we'll be working on that, which is, like Josh said, quite scary, seeing as three years has gone pretty fast, seeing as I can remember me and myself, well, myself and Josh, uh, started on the first day, and to think that we're coming out of our apprenticeship in September, um, it really has gone quick. Obviously, there's the dream team. Um, we, uh, as you can see, we've got another year um, after Jack and Will, which is Sean Middleton and Jamie Hodgson. They're the electrical apprentices now, as we were mechanical. Uh, this is our company expanding again, not just taking on mechanical apprentices. We're also getting electrical side now. As Josh said, it's a big gap in the market. There isn't really anyone our age that are doing it much in this company. It's more or less older people or contractors from other companies. Um, obviously, when we come out of our time, we'll be, we'll be filling that gap. So we've got the future of apprentices turning into maybe future managers or licensed engineers to see what other places there is for us within the company. Thanks a lot for listening to me and Josh today. Is there any questions? Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs>It's great to hear a, a couple of young men like Joss and Luke who, uh, you know, uh, are right at the start of their, of their careers and uh, the enthusiasm they've, they've got for uh, uh, aerospace engineering in safe hands. Now, I, I would like to introduce uh, Richard Parker, who's uh, an aeronautical engineer working for a company called Reaction Engines, who are basically developing a, a revolutionary type of engine to power uh, space launch vehicles. So over to you, Richard.
thanks. Okay, so I've got a point here. Okay, yes. Yeah, so my name's Richard Parker. I am the deputy design office manager at uh, Reaction Engines. And uh, first, I thought I'd uh, say a little bit about myself and uh, how I ended up working where I am. So I went the university route. Uh, it feels quite a scarily short period of time since I was. Yeah, the most important question in my life was, what am I going to do? Which university am I going to go to? Uh, so I graduated college, uh, got my A-levels, went to University of Southampton. Going to be a little bit of trouble because I joined the IMECE, not the, uh, the Aeronautical Society, uh, but I ended up on a graduate scheme with uh, an organisation called RAL Space, which is part of the uh, Science and Technology Facilities Council, uh, so worked on uh, satellites, that sort of thing. Uh, scientific instruments, and uh, I joined Reaction Engines back in 2013. So we've already heard a little bit about uh, space, heard Rosetta mentioned earlier on, and the UK, whilst there isn't a massive uh, UK space budget, uh, we do very, very well for ourselves in terms of, firstly, the science that we can do. We had UK instruments on uh, Rosetta. But we also um, have a very large industry making uh, communication satellites, uh, increasingly in GPS as well. And uh, Tim Peake's going to fly to the ISS. So space is actually quite important to the UK. Um, but there's a problem with space, which is getting there. So this is how we get to space at the moment. Uh, this is the V2 rocket. And basically, the way we get to space is we use ballistic missile technology. And um, everybody knows what happens to the V2 when it comes down. Uh, we don't build rockets in the UK at the moment, but if you know a little bit of history, we actually did for a while. So back in the 1960s, we had a, a missile program which turned into a space program. It was called Blue Streak. And um, later that was followed by uh, a very successful, although short-lived, launch uh, vehicle called um, Black Arrow, which launched a satellite called Prospero. And as this is the UK, we successfully launched a satellite and then cancelled the program and never went back to rockets. Um, but there was an engineer on uh, Blue Streak by the name of Alan Bond, and I'll mention him later, because he's now my boss. But um, what's the problem with today's launches? Uh, basically, they're expensive. And if you imagine you're going to... Well, imagine what air travel would be like if you wanted to fly to the United States... But in order to do that, you had to throw your 747 into the ocean. It, it's not uh, economical, basically. So it gets very expensive. And there's also the, uh, the reliability problem as well. That if you put stuff on top of a rocket, about one time in 50, your payload's going to end up in an ocean rather than in space. So it's, it's not a reliable transport system. You wouldn't get in a car if you had one chance in 50 of not getting where you were going. So... Eventually, we moved on uh, in the 1980s to the first totally reusable space plane design. So this was uh, not the space shuttle. This was a, a launch vehicle that would take off from a runway and fly into space. Um, then it would deliver a payload, come back to Earth. It was called HOTOL. It was a British design developed by British Aerospace <coughs> and Rolls-Royce back in the 1980s. Uh, and it was the brainchild of Alan Bond. Um, and the way that it worked was that... Because you probably know from science that hydrogen is a lot lighter than oxygen, uh, you, launch vehicles only carrying six to eight times 
as much in terms of weight of hydrogen as it is in terms of oxygen. So if you can build a launch vehicle that can use atmospheric air for the first part of the ascent, then you can actually then switch over to conventional rocket, and it's possible to build a rocket that will go up in a single stage rather than in multiple stages. So Alan Bond, who worked on HOTOL when it was eventually cancelled, he left his, uh, his work at Rolls-Royce and was joined by another couple of engineers, Richard Varvel and John Scott Scott, to form a, the company that I now work for, which is uh, Reaction Engines. So it started out with three of them, and they were basically working from home to start out with. Uh, they worked for about 10, 11 years on just the technical design of the engine and the launch vehicle tech, um, layout. And they ended up with, uh, you see here, the, the Skylon design concept, which I'll come back to. Um, and having decided that that concept would work, they focused all their efforts on developing the, uh, the key technologies that would make the, the system work. Uh, we're based at the, uh, the Column Science Centre in, in Oxfordshire. And they started out with three people back in 1989. Uh, we're now 65 people and growing very quickly. We're expecting to be about 200 within a year or so. Things are taking off very quickly. So the company's goal is operational single-stage to orbit space planes. And we think Skylon is the best way of doing that, using the engines that we've developed, which are called Sabre. So here's how they work, how they're laid out. Uh, basically, it's a rocket engine, but on the front we have uh, a compressor like you'd find in a jet engine. And the, the problem with jet engines is as you fly faster and faster, the air coming into the front of the engine gets hotter. And a jet engine stops working Mach 2, Mach 3. You can use something called a ramjet, which will get you up to about most Mach 4 or 5. Uh, but then the air is just too hot to cope with. This engine works quite comfortably from a standing start up to Mach 5, and it does that because we've got this uh, device here, which we call the pre-cooler. It's a heat exchanger. It's a very lightweight, high-powered heat exchanger, and that works because we're carrying liquid hydrogen on board the vehicle. So, yeah, there's an air intake on the front. Air comes in, it's cooled. And it's cooled from uh, 1,000 degrees Kelvin to about 100 Kelvin uh, in a hundredth of a second. It's, it's a very, very high rate of cooling. It's a 400 megawatt heat exchanger. That should work, yeah. So that's the engine cycle. It looks complicated, but it's actually um, a lot simpler once you understand what's going on. Basically, you've got cold hydrogen coming in here and hot air here. And you use that, that heat and that cold, that heat and cold there, to drive a compressor. So when, it's, uh, when it takes off from the runway and when it flies up to Mach 5, it's breathing atmospheric air. The atmospheric air comes in through the front, it's cooled, it can then easily be compressed, and it's put into a rocket combustion chamber, just in place of a liquid oxygen. Once you reach Mach 5, you, you reach a point where the, the engine no longer works as an air-breathing engine, so you close the air intake, and instead you switch over to using liquid oxygen. So, having demonstrated on paper that this engine would work, uh, what Reaction Engines has been focused on for the last uh, few years, 
up until now has been demonstrating that the technology works. So this is the real hardware that we've had on our test stand. It's, uh, it's what we call the pre-cooler. Uh, it's got 21 of these, these modules uh, with the helium flowing through these tubes in, um, I should have mentioned it's using helium as a, um, a working fluid in this engine. But the, the helium is cooled by, uh, cools the incoming air and then it's cooled by the hydrogen in another heat exchanger. But this is a, a small scale version of the, uh, the full scale engine. So developing the technology is our um, is what we do basically the the technology to make the heat exchanger work. That is a cross section of one of the tubes, and showing the sort of defects we're looking for. Uh, it's a millimeter across, to give you an idea of, of scale. And in a full size engine, there is something like uh, twelve hundred miles of uh, tube. So inspecting it all and making sure there are no leaks is, is <laughs> quite a challenge. So this technology development is what Reaction Engines has been focused on up until now. And having built this demonstration heat exchanger, we've built a, a test rig, and we, we've now finished this part of the program, but this was to demonstrate in front of a, an old jet engine that we could run and cool, uh, run this heat exchanger and cool air. Um, and, and we've proven that the, the technology works. I should add that one of the, the problems is if you take air, especially tropical air and you start putting it into a, a heat exchanger that's cooling it to below freezing is that the, the whole assemblage would freeze up in a few seconds uh, from the water freezing out of the air so uh, dealing with that is another technology that we've had to develop and we're quite secretive about how we do that so this is the uh, what we call frost control it's a very important part of the um, process but this is uh, from that test rig showing the, the air coming into the pre-cooler at minus 80 degrees celsius uh, and, and you can see the air's flowing as uh, the system's working. So technology development is really what we've been uh, working on up until now. The, the engine is, is using components that exist already in the aviation industry, but there are a few exceptions, and that's what we've been focused on. So uh, I won't go into too much depth on any of these, but uh, contra-rotating turbine, uh, using helium to power an air turbine. The turbines want to run at different speeds and that's how we cope with that. Uh, different kinds of heat exchangers. Uh, we've looked at silicon carbide heat exchangers. Uh, we're developing um, all kinds of heat exchangers, of course, the pre-cooler. And also um, exotic nozzles. Um, one problem that you have if you have a single stage to orbit vehicle is that rocket nozzles for low altitude look very different to rocket nozzles you want to use in, in orbit. So we've developed uh, what we call altitude-compensating nozzles. And, of course, we've been looking at the vehicle as well, uh, the trajectory modelling, avionics, uh, aeroshell material, and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's an exciting company to work for because there are all of these little projects going on. And we've got, because we're a small company, we've got a lot of freedom to, to innovate and pursue these, these ideas uh, certainly from a, a personal point of view, I enjoy being able to, to go to work, sit at my desk, and having that creative freedom. If I have an idea, my, my boss is quite happy <coughs> for me to, to run with it and, uh, and see, what, uh, see what I come up with. We've got a little video here of uh, how we envisage Skylon operating. Uh, so this, this is what happens 
when you start using space planes instead of using rockets to access orbit. So you have a... I should say the plan wouldn't be for us to build Skylon and operate it. We would uh, envisage Skylon being built and um, being sold to operators who would operate them on a commercial competitive basis, just like airlines do with their aircraft. So you load the payload in a, a spaceport. It's towed to a refueling apron where hydrogen and oxygen is loaded on board. The vehicle weighs about 300 tonnes. Uh, half of that mass at start of roll is, is liquid oxygen, and uh, much of the rest is, is hydrogen. Payload's about 15 tonnes. It's quite a long runway to take off, but it's a conventional takeoff on conventional undercarriage. As I say, Sabre as an engine works from a standing start. This is the uh, cutaway of the engine I've already shown you. It's basically a set of rocket engines mated to some extra kit here, which is the compressor and, of course, the pre-cooler that allows us to fly up to Mach 5. So when you reach uh, the transition speed... Ah, that's there. comes in a minute. But yeah. We've got the red you see there is the hydrogen tanks and the, the oxygen tanks, the blue. reach transition, close the, the air intakes, and then just fly into space like a, a conventional rocket. It's got a payload bay, look like the uh, space shuttle, about the same size as well. Uh, and the, the sizing case we've used is for uh, geostationary uh, communication satellites. But uh, a 15-ton payload, we think, is, is good for uh, most space launches. So what you see here is uh, an idea we've got for a reusable upper stage. So as well as getting Skylon back, the upper stage launches the satellite out to a geostationary orbit, uh, but then it flies back and can actually rendezvous. We use what we call a resonant orbit. So the satellite deploys itself just like a normal communication satellite, but the upper stage continues on this elliptical orbit to rendezvous with the Skylon, which is waiting for it. So you're not throwing away your upper stage, just like you're not throwing away the, uh, the rocket to get into orbit. So envisaging a fully reusable space infrastructure. Uh, the vehicle itself is unmanned, but it uh, does have the capability to carry a, a personnel and logistics module. So, and of course there is a, a captain, uh, although just like any other rocket, it's flown uh, entirely on autopilot for the uh, ascent and, uh, and of course for landing as well. This is <laughs> some examples of how uh, we've been let, allowed to let our imagination run wild a bit in terms of what uh, a future space economy would look like. but. Uh, future infrastructure, but once it's it's easy to get hardware into space, uh, like we heard earlier on today, there's going to be an enormous scope for people taking what we're what we've made possible and, and doing stuff now that we haven't even uh, stuff that we haven't even thought of now. Uh, Skylon re-enters just like the uh, the space shuttle does. Uh, 
So it's, um, it's a dead stick landing. It glides back in. It glides about as well as the space shuttle does, um, which is not very well, but it, it can be landed. And uh, we reckon uh, turn around in a few days, which uh, is quite different to the space shuttle, which is uh, it took them months to, to turn around. So I think that's uh, I think that's it. I don't know if we're taking any questions at this point. No. So any questions? We we keep hearing that uh, keep saying uh, first flight within a, a decade or so. The the phase we're working on at the moment is fully funded. Uh, we're building a, a full sized uh, demonstration engine is what we're working on at the moment. So that is likely to happen within the next few years, uh, I'd say three to four years. And from there, we'd move on to uh, flight test engines and then hopefully having found a partner to build the vehicle, because we're, we're interested in the engine, uh, it would be another five years, decade after that, I think, realistically. But things are happening quite quickly now. It's, it's quite exciting, really. Anybody else? Sorry, I, I can't uh, come here. Yes, it, it's th there would be a, a commander on board if it was uh, flying with with uh, passengers. But uh, yeah, it's it's basically most rockets, most launch vehicles today are flown automatically. In fact, all of them are for the the ascent. So. Yeah, when you have passengers on board, of course you want to have a pilot, but uh, the, the, the role of pilot isn't necessarily a stick-and-rudder job. Uh, yeah, yeah, effectively. Okay. okay. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. And um, Richard and all this morning's speakers will be taking a part in the, uh, the afternoon question-and-answer session. So uh, start thinking now about what sort of um, questions you, you might like to ask. Uh, and now we have a fighter pilot to talk to you, um, Flight Lieutenant Stefan Werwell, who uh, flies typhoons with uh, 29 Squadron at Royal Air Force Conningby. Over to you, Stefan. Good afternoon, um, ladies, gents, uh, boys and girls. Uh, my name's Stefan. I've come down from Collingsby, as uh, you just said, uh, from 29 Reserve Squadron, which is the uh, Typhoon Operational Conversion Unit. So where we teach uh, young guys and girls like you who come through the flying system uh, to fly Typhoon, uh, which is what I do. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I, um, I did my degree in London. It's really nice to be back from sleepy Lincolnshire. Um, I must admit, I've never been to this building, which is, which is shameful, and it's a beautiful building. Um, so it's really nice uh, to be here. Good. I can fly a typhoon. I'm not so good with technology, so we'll see how we how we go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've got my man at the back helping me out. It's very kind. Um, good. So first thing a fighter pilot does is he puts a big picture of himself and starts talking about himself. Um, just very briefly, just so you know, for maybe the questions and answers later, if there's anything that I can talk about 
or that you have a question on or my background, then I'm more than, uh, than willing to help. Um, so here we are. This is, um, this is me after my first Typhoon solo. This is my, me, my I'm glad to be alive look. Um, uh, my background then. So I was an air cadet. Hands up in here if you're in the air cadets. Good. Okay. So um, that's how I started, and that's how many people start. Not everyone does. Um, it's probably three quarters or so in the Air Force. Uh, like I said, I came to, to London. I lived up in Scotland at the time and studied aerospace engineering at Queen Mary. Um, I definitely can't remember as much detail uh, as what the previous speaker was talking about with Mach 5 rockets, um, but that was the kind of thing that I really enjoyed. Um, I went through flying training. Uh, I then did a tour as a, an instructor on the Hawk, which is the same plane that the, the Red Arrows use, you've probably seen. Uh, and again, I taught a few people to fly that. Um, I then got told I was going to the Harrier, which was brilliant, um, but it was about three or four months before the defence cut. Uh, and I got, uh, on the day of my birthday, I went to have my first hover, uh, and the phone went down, and he, they told me to get changed again. I wasn't going flying. Uh, so only a couple of solos on the Harrier, uh, and that was that. Um, I then went to go and fly air cadets in the tutor, which is probably what some of you guys have done. Hands up if you've flown in a tutor. There we go. So you know what I'm on about. A uh, few loops and barrel rolls, which is really good fun. Um, after all that kind of lighthearted stuff, I got a phone call from uh, the poster in the Air Force, uh, and he said, how would you like to go to southern Italy uh, and help out with what's going on in Libya? Um, so I went along, I did a bit of programming for the tornadoes and typhoons out there, uh, and I got to stay in southern Italy for around four months, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, I finally then carried on with my flying training, uh, changed to typhoon, uh, and then was posted to my first frontline squadron, uh, which is one fighter squadron. Um, that is now based up at RF Lossiemouth, having moved from uh, Lucas, which is now shut, unfortunately. Uh, and here I am today as part of a, um, a squadron which deals with training again. Good. I'm going to try another click, and if not, my friend will help me out. Oh, it's not good. Can I have the next slide if you can hear me? No. There we go. Uh, good. This could be painfully slow. Um, what am I going to talk about today? And so uh, I'll touch briefly on general military flying because obviously the Air Force and Typhoon isn't all there is to do with the military flying. Uh, I'll tell you a bit about Typhoon. Now, I know. Most of, in here, most of you in here may not want to be pilots, and that's absolutely fine. Um, what's good to see is that there are so many different uh, ages, especially the, the younger amongst you. Um, it's just really good and important that you know what your, uh, your country's defence get up to, what capabilities we have. And if you come away at least knowing that much, uh, then I'll be really pleased. And for those of you who would like to fly Typhoon, well then, brilliant, you'll get to see um, what it's like from our point of view. <laughs> I, I would criticise, but I'm probably not much better. Um, what else will we touch on? We'll have a look at what our day job involves on a frontline squadron, so not so much the, uh, the training squadron. Um, I'll talk about what I think my personal opinion is for the, the future of fast jet flying. Um, what skills I think you require, and that's pretty tricky to, to nail down. Um, by all means, I'll take some questions, um, but I have a feeling, if anything, I'm going to overrun as opposed to not, but I know you've got lunch next. Uh, right, general military flying. Um, it'd be wrong of me not to mention uh, the Royal Navy and the Army Air Corps. Um, they themselves are uh, excellent units for flying. Um, they don't have the same diversity as the Air Force does, um, but by, by all means, uh, the Navy currently doesn't have frontline fast jets, and they will do soon. For the guys who were flying the Harrier in the Navy, they are now in the States, most of them flying the Hornet. So they're ticking over uh, until their next fast jet comes in. The Army Air Corps has a variety of helicopters, support helicopters, and, of course, the Apache, uh, and they all do an excellent job. And, you know, if the Air Force isn't for you, um, then the others are uh, 
uh, excellent places to, to work and fly. I'm going to go for the next slide. Yes. Right, on to the Air Force. Um, you can see we have a lot of aircraft, and the majority of which aren't fast jets anymore. Um, gone are the days where we had five or six different types. We now just have Tornado and Typhoon in the top left, and the rest are mostly um, support aircraft, tankers, uh, and the old helicopter as well. This doesn't include the training aircraft, of course, so things like the Hawk, the Tutor, the Kinger. Um, but you can see we've got a wide range. Particularly of note is the, uh, the Reaper, so the remotely piloted uh, air system, which is going to become more and more a uh, factor in all the services. Slide. Um, very quickly, uh, just like the slogan says with the Air Force, you know, you don't have to be a pilot to fly in the Air Force, and it is true. And we have weapon system operators, and the Tornado that was formerly kind of referred to as a navigator, uh, these days they're known as Wizzos. But Wizzo also covers crewmen, uh, people working down the back of uh, surveillance platforms, people feeding fuel to uh, aircraft, etc., uh, and dealing with troops. Uh, and one thing I didn't know about until yesterday when I looked at the website is we have linguists on board as well. Um, so people translating radio transmissions, and you can probably imagine the places in the world where that would be um, really useful. Uh, and finally, we have stewards as well. Slide, please. Right, the first technological challenge. Uh, I'm going to show you a short two-minute video. Um, this was taken only three or four months ago up at uh, Lossy Mouth from my previous squadron, uh, where we were the first frontline squadron to drop Paveway 4. Um, Paveway 4 is a 500-pound bomb, which has been in, in service with the Tornado, uh, but it's just come on to Typhoon. Uh, it's a nice bit of video, and I hope it's going to work. If we keep struggling, then we can play them at the end if it helps you out in the back. I'm getting a big nod. Okay, not to worry. We won't... Uh, we won't oh. oh, oh. This can be a little bit like the typhoon some days as well. Um, you quite often find you get in it, power it up, and it is quite literally like control-out deleting a jet um, when she sometimes wakes up a bit grumpy. Um, so uh, I am used to this kind of thing. getting somewhere.
Thanks for your patience. <laughs> right, we'll carry on. Um, so a little bit about the jet itself. You can see um, it's a phenomenal jet to fly. Um, Performance-wise, it's, it's a leap up in what the Air Force has ever had. It, it really is up there with some of the best aircraft in the world. Um, in terms of thrust, uh, so it has 40,000 pounds of thrust between its two EJ200 engines. Um, I was trying to find a way of putting that into um, to kind of perspective. I did a bit of Googling, and apparently it's about the weight of three medium-sized elephants pulling on a piece of string. Um, so that's kind of the weight that's uh, pulling it through the air at max power. Um, Takeoff takes off at 155 knots thereabouts, uh, which is about 180 miles an hour. Um, so we're looking at probably two and a half times what your mum and dad can do legally on the motorway. Um, any ideas as to how long it takes to get to that speed? <laughs> Nervous. Six seconds is a good guess. Seven seconds. Okay. So zero to 180 miles an hour in seven seconds isn't too bad. Um, 40,000 feet in less than two minutes uh, if we really want to. Um, fuel consumption is actually pretty good in terms of fighter jets. Um, it'll stay airborne for around two hours without air refueling. Um, it likes being up high and fast. Uh, you saw there on the takeoff where it's in reheat with the flames coming out the back. Um, we get airborne with um, about seven family cars worth of uh, fuel. Uh, sorry, 100 family cars worth of fuel, about seven tons. When we're down low in max reheat, we're using about one family car worth about every minute and a half. Um, so that's when you really need to be um, careful with your fuel. And that's why when we're teaching the guys to fly, especially in combat, we need to, uh, we need to make sure they don't run out because it's not a very good glider. Um, slide, please. Um, with all that performance and maneuverability comes quite a, um, uh, a strain on your body. Um, so we have some of the, the best flying kit in the world, in my opinion. Um, I've been across to the States and seen what they have, and they're really impressed by what, uh, what the Air Force has. Full carefree handling, what does that mean? So the jet will not allow me to break it other than flying it into the ground and all that sort of stuff. So I can pull the stick into any corner, any speed, and it will give me the maximum possible G or roll rate, uh, which is great because it immediately gives me an advantage over somebody who we might be fighting. Uh, it's plus 9, minus 3G, um, so it's 9 times your body weight, uh, and that just means that, as you probably know, the blood drains away from your head. Uh, we have a really good anti-G system, so we wear uh, trousers that inflate. It takes the, uh, the air from the engine, believe it or not, so it's quite high pressure, uh, but they do cool it down, which is good. Um, they inflate your jacket around your chest, and then they also pump air into your lungs. Um, it sounds horrific, but I promise you it's actually quite comfortable, and uh, it really does help you keep conscious uh, when you're at those extremes. Pressure breathing uh, is what I just talked about. Uh, on the left, you can see the kind of standard helmet that most of us fly around with or have up until now. Uh, but more and more, you'll see the, the helmet on the lower right, which is referred to as our um, helmet-mounted sighting system. Uh, it's nothing new, really, worldwide across military aviation, uh, but it is for Typhoon. Um, for the last year or so, we've been wearing that quite a lot. Um, what does it allow me to do? Well, it allows me to not only shoot or identify somebody within my head-up display in front of me, which you'll see in a sec, um, but it allows me to look wider to the left and right outside the cockpit uh, and find where a guy is. And it literally is like in your computer games for some of you, where you see the green writing and I can look around uh, and it's really quite useful. Um, really good piece of kit. Um, all the little bumps that make it look like an alien head are the little sensors uh, that it uses to work out where you're looking. Uh, slide, please. Uh, right, let's have a look at the, the cockpit and the displays. You can see there, this is uh, Adam. Um, I've put Adam up because most of the girls like Adam. Um, uh, it's a nice, spacious uh, cockpit, um, really nice to work in. Most people who sit in it um, you know, do feel quite comfortable. Um, 
a Martin Baker ejection seat, which is uh, excellent. It'll save your life down to 100 feet, upside down, uh, and going quite fast. So uh, I'm really pleased to be sat in one of them. Uh, we'll go slide again, please. Okay, things that you can expect to see. I'm not even going to try using the laser. Um, oh, back one, please, if you could. Uh, so on the very top, the, the band, you've got your heading. Um, the big line through the middle is where the horizon bar is. Uh, on the top left, you've got 442, which is your speed in knots, and then next to it, your Mach number. Uh, and then on the top right in the circle, uh, 5,400 feet. And it just winds up and down like a regular altimeter. Um, on the bottom left, it's telling me that I'm going to uh, waypoint number two. It's going to take me four minutes and nine seconds. It's on a heading of 171, and it's 31 miles away. So uh, really easy to be somewhere on time um, because it helps you out a lot. In conjunction with that, it has cruise control like in a, in a family car. So I don't need to be flying the jet the whole time with the throttles. I can just press a button, um, select the speed that I want, and it will get me there, which is great. makes my life a lot easier. Um, and then, like most of my sorties, it's telling me I'm going to be 19 seconds late, um, which is fairly, fairly standard. Uh, slide, please. We'll try one more, one more quick video. This is only a short clip. Um, what you're going to see um, is a night approach. Um, the, you'll be pleased to know I'm not filming this while I'm flying. Um, this is a, another guy flying. I'm in the back seat. Um, you'll start to make out the runway. Um, the reason why he's not quite on the center line is because he's just come down from a, an air traffic controlled approach. And I've told him that he can now see the runway and he's going to have a go at landing. Um, we've decided to do a low approach, so not touch down, and you'll just see the nose start to come up. But you'll see what it looks like at night uh, with all the symbology. And it's upside down. I'll tell you what, we'll leave that. <laughs> Not even I can do that. Right, we'll go on to the next slide. <laughs> Amazing. Good. Um, so the head-up display on the top, um, then what do we have? So three main big screens, all in color, um, all look a bit jumbled up at first. So what have we got? On the left screen is a gold eye view with you in the bottom center looking out where your radar is. Um, the little diamond means that the guy that I'm looking at is a hostile, um, so he's not friendly. Um, the fact that he's grey means that my radar hasn't seen him, but it's uh, AWACS, so the Airborne Warning and Control, that is giving my jet that information. Um, that's a really useful thing to have. Um, if you imagine if you're all bad um, and I'm heading towards you with my radar on, I can obviously make out who you all are. Um, I don't necessarily want to do that the whole time because it means I've got to get right in close to you and fight you. And that's not always what we're about. Um, what I want to do is find you with my radar, throw a missile at you, and then I'm going to turn around and run um, away from you and hope that it hits you. While I've got my back pointed to you, I obviously can't see you on my radar. I have other systems which tell me if your radar is looking at me. Um, but this, what we refer to as Link 16 or MIDS, means that while I've got my back to you, I can still know where you are, um, which really makes our life uh, a lot easier. The center screen uh, would normally be our map, so we would normally have a, a regular map superimposed on that, but when we're fighting, we tend to get rid of the map underneath just to declutter it, uh, and we have, a, again, a god's eye view with our little green uh, triangle where our aircraft is, uh, and then anything that might be in front. The green line is a route that's in there, and the little blue triangle is where you should be if you weren't late. Again, pretty common for my flight. Finally, on the right-hand side, you have a side view, so this time the radar, like this, and it's telling me if people are above, below me. Um, and that's also quite useful for your situational awareness. Um, if you can imagine, if it's night, if we, we train mostly over the sea, so the North Sea, and we have the oil rigs below, 
you have the stars above and it, it can get pretty disorientating because you are supersonic, you're pulling lots of G whilst trying to work the radar and formate, etc. Um, so it's not unusual for guys to get disorientated. Um, we're all trained how to get out of it. But the really neat thing about Typhoon is that it has a, a single button that you can press and, and it will recover you. If you go next slide, um, by pressing it, it takes control from you. Um, it rolls you the right way up. It puts you in a gentle climb and it gets your attention by bringing up a big artificial horizon on the center screen until you work out what's going on. Um, so really useful. Uh, a few of my colleagues have used it and they've been really pleased that the aircraft has the feature. Slide. Briefly on to what do we do? So slide again, please. Um, squadron life. So um, the majority of your time on the squadron is spent doing training. Um, there are so many disciplines that we have to keep uh, current that we're just always doing something uh, to work out. You can see they're mostly flying, um, about 15% in the simulator, depending on what we're doing. Two to four missions a week. Um, doesn't sound a lot, especially when I tell my wife. She says, what have you done this week? Two missions. She's like, um, it, we'll come on to um, what each mission involves. Um, a lot of supervisory duties, especially as you go through your, uh, your tour. You start looking after the younger guys. You start leading the younger guys. Uh, and there's lots to do there. Constant ground training um, with things to learn. Uh, hosting visits, giving talks every now and again, uh, some of the better bits. Uh, and then we have the stuff that nobody really enjoys, the sea drills, the fitness tests, uh, and all the weapons training. Slides, please. I know this one doesn't work, so we'll skip it. Right, what does a typical day involve? Um, it changes day by day. Um, one of the not-so-good things about my job, I think, is that I have to set my alarm for a different time each day, and I get grumpy in the morning. Um, but this is fairly representative. So about 7.30, we have a, a weather brief uh, for about 15 minutes. Um, we then start uh, planning, uh, and we end up having a mission briefing around about an hour before the sortie, thereabouts, depending on what we're doing. Sign for the jet with the engineers. It's all done electronically. Um, there's no keys. Um, it's just an electronic signature, and then you walk out to the aircraft. Taking off about two and a half hours later. Slide, please. Uh, we fly into the area. Uh, on this particular mission, if we're doing OCA, that's offensive counter air. That is heading out into an area, protecting some bombers, letting them do their thing, and then protecting them on the way home. Um, we'll quite often, probably every other mission, go take on fuel. Uh, we'll try this video because I think it's good. Air fueling, you've probably seen clips. That's when you have a little bit of a wibble sometimes. Um, one of the things with the jet, if we can pause the video. You can just pause it there. Um, if you look underneath the nose, there's a couple of probes. Um, those power the, or give information to the flight computers. It's four of those with four probes. Um, it can fly on one of them alone, but if we take them all out, it turns into a, a brick. Um, it stops flying. So one of the things we get particularly nervous about is exactly this, where the basket swipes underneath the nose of the aircraft uh, and can cause uh, damage into the engines, and it can also take out your, um, your computers. Uh, this was on the way to the States, and luckily um, nothing happened. Slide, please. Anyway, assuming we've taken on fuel with no issues... We'll then check in with our uh, E3 for our AWACS. Uh, we'll get fight our way into the target area ahead of the, uh, the bombers. Once we're there, we'll try and lock down any enemy airfields, uh, let them do their thing, uh, and then we'll egress back out together. 
Once we get back on the ground, the fun uh, really starts. We collect all the information from all our jets, and we have various ways of doing that. We merge it all together into a, a, replay, a replay facility, uh, and then we start debriefing. Typically, a debrief will last about two hours, um, depending on how well you've done. I've seen some four-hour debriefs as well. Um, after that, it's into meetings, emails, etc., all the stuff that you normally do. So you can see one mission uh, for two, hour, two and a half hours flying or so is taken from 7 in the morning till 4 o'clock. Um, that's just for the first wave of the day. There is obviously a second and a third wave of flying as well. So it is busy, um, and that's something that uh, is fairly normal in the military. Slide, please. Where we're getting close to, uh, to lunch. Typhoon's main standing commitment in the UK is quick reaction alert. That is what we have promised the UK we will do 24 hours a day for the whole year. There are always four aircraft on state uh, ready to intercept uh, aircraft entering the UK, uh, which we are told to do so. Um, the first time I intercepted an aircraft, it was a, a Russian bear, the one uh, you can see on the, uh, the top left there. Uh, and I was asked to go and intercept him just west of Ireland. Uh, he'd been around the Mediterranean, and he was making his way back up to Russia. Happens probably around once every couple of months, depending on what's going on. When we hold exercises in the UK, they tend to come a little bit more. Uh, and they also like to visit us over Christmas, which is always nice. Um, so there we go. Um, always very friendly. Um, they give you waves. And they'll sometimes hold up the station magazine to you to show that they've got that. Um, uh, but the, the main reason we go and intercept them is because they haven't got a flight plan. They're not um, squawking in their traffic code. And really for your safety, uh, as airline passengers perhaps, we sit alongside them, tell their traffic where they are, and we clear the flight path to make sure that nothing happens. Uh, on a more exciting note, uh, we do Baltic Air Policing. The picture on the top right was taken by a colleague of mine uh, who's a French exchange pilot, uh, and they got airborne uh, to find that there was a, an SU-27 flanker uh, came and said hello with his wingman. Um, that is our baseline threat that we train to, so their hearts were going a little bit. It, it was all very friendly in the end, but they got some cracking photos, uh, and it was quite nice to see the, uh, the flanker up close. Uh, other bits on the news, I'm sure you've all heard of aircraft coming into the UK and being escorted uh, into different areas. It's not always uh, people with bad intentions. I've done one where it was a light aircraft being delivered from the States uh, to, uh, out to the east somewhere. Uh, his headset had become uncomfortable. He took it off uh, and he didn't speak to anyone. The next thing he knew, I was alongside him uh, and he quickly put the headset back on again. Um, so we, and we do try and help out people as well. Sometimes they've got a genuine navigation failure or radio failure. So we are, we are here to help, not just scare people. Um, slide, please. Uh, we go on a lot of exercises. Um, anyone recognize top left? Yeah. Is there Malaysia? Malaysia, yeah. Yeah, Patronus Towers. Um, I was lucky enough to go there, and we did an exercise with the Malaysians and Singaporeans. Uh, it was very good. Uh, and then uh, bottom right, we've got the Grand Canyon, uh, which we went to uh, this January to do exercise Red Flag. Um, Red Flag, for those who don't know, is probably one of the, well, it is the biggest um, air exercise in the world. Uh, involves the, uh, the US, and they have a dedicated aggressor squadron who's, whose job it is to make your life really hard, um, simulating uh, MiGs, etc. Um, around about 100 aircraft get airborne each mission um, at night and by day. Um, and my first, uh, my first mission there was at night, um, waiting to go, and there's things like B-2s flying above you. I've never seen a radar scope so full. Um, quite scary when you first do it, but over around seven or eight missions, uh, it's really excellent training. Slide, please. 
quickly on the future, what I think is going to happen. So um, Lightning II, the F-35, that is the Air Force's new name for, uh, for what's coming in. It's replacing Tornado. So for those of you who want to fly in the Air Force, you'll probably find that um, Tornado won't be an option, uh, or at least just for a little bit, possibly. But good news is that Lightning II is coming in, uh, which is an immense piece of kit. Um, there's debate as to have we gone for the right variant, and I can talk to you about that later if you wish. Um, it will be good. It will have some teething problems. And for those of you that get to fly it, um, there will be a little bit of frustration, I think. But ultimately, I'm sure it will be an excellent aircraft. Um, I think we will see more simulator training. Um, that's no bad thing. Uh, I think you can get a lot of value out of simulators. Uh, for some of the school-age kids like you, you know, I was sat in my room playing simulators like a geek, uh, and I thought it was quite good. Um, the good thing is you can simulate anywhere in the world, lots of aircraft, um, really good value for money. Um, the bad thing, obviously, is you don't get the sensation of flight, um, as you can imagine. Increased use of UAVs or RPAS, um, I think we will see more of that. Um, you probably know that events nowadays, they happen in real time. It's on people's Facebook mobiles instantly, uh, and there's very little appetite for loss of human life, and quite rightly so, because I don't want to do that. Um, so people like using UAVs. Um, they're great for certain things. We saw that in Afghanistan. Um, but they still have a way to go until they're doing the kind of job we do at the moment. That said, though, I think your generation will start to work more alongside them, uh, and I think you'll see uh, a lot more stuff like that. Ultimately, um, we live in a, a changing world, and, and you all know that. Um, Typhoon was designed for Cold War-esque type intercepts, uh, and here we are using it over places like Libya um, and other places in the world. Um, uh, it's something that we could never have foreseen. Slide, please. Um, in terms of what skills you need, there's lots. Um, what we don't want in the Air Force, or certainly what I've seen, is we don't want robots. Um, you're not going to be you know, short back and sides, do everything I tell you to, uh, and run around and jump. Um, the things I do think you need, uh, you need determination, obviously, as in any job, whether it's engineering uh, you know, for your career. Um, there has to be an element of physically, physical fitness. Uh, I'm no triathlete, but you need to be uh, physically fit through get, to get through the initial training. Uh, you need to be good at multitasking, which my wife tells me that the women, women are better at anyway. Um, and you need to be a good communicator. It's probably worth putting up, you need to be good at PowerPoint presentation. Um, adaptable. I think, again, for your generation, uh, you really need to uh, you be adaptable. Um, what you've seen today will most likely change by the time uh, you're in the military, if some of you do go. I think you're going to be asked to do a lot with fewer assets, but the assets you will have will be very capable. Um, so, you know, we'll wait and see what happens, but, uh, yeah, you need to stay flexible. Uh, on the light side, yes, sense of humour is really useful, and there's times where you are cold, dirty, and wet, and, you know, if you can have a laugh, it helps you get through. Um, definitely want some of your own personality, uh, a team player, um, someone who just believes that they can get the job done. Uh, and I was sat where you are, you know, not a very long time ago, despite the grey hair, um, and I would never have thought that I would be flying in the jet that I was sitting on the simulator plane. Um, it happens quite quickly, but it's done in a step-by-step -step process. So you just need to believe that you can get through the next stage. That was the hint to go to lunch. I think now you can get to the next slide, that's fine. Good. Um, thank you for your patience. I hope that you've just taken away a little bit of a, you know, whetted your appetite as to what we do. Um, sorry some of the videos didn't work. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll leave questions until later, unless there's some burning ones right now. Um, by all means, take a note of my email. If I can help any of you out with questions, um, visits, um, then let me know. 
uh, and I'll be more than happy to, uh, to speak to you later. So any burning question at the moment? Good. I'll tell you what, I'll see you after lunch. Thank you. Stefan, thank you very much indeed. Um, I was interested to see the pictures of um, interception of bare aircraft because um, while I didn't do that in quite that way in, the, uh, in my uh, service career, back in the Cold War, the book was in the other foot. Uh, I got intercepted quite a lot, of, a lot of times by Soviet aircraft, so I imagine you can guess what I was doing. Um, right, firstly, I'd like uh, just to ask you all to thank all our speakers this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, now, before we break for lunch, I've got quite a few announcements to make, so uh, listen in, please. Um, there are going to be challenges through, throughout the lunch break. Uh, the lunch break is up one flight, of, uh, one uh, stairs, uh, in what's known as the Argyle Room, and there are a couple of challenges going on. There's a thing that the society is running, which is a a critical thinking challenge called Playing Crazy. Um, and uh, people who produce the, direct the correct answers to that will be uh, <clears throat> entered into a draw to win a careers and engineering guide. And if you can please give your completed answer sheets to the careers team. So um, can you just uh, stand up and let people know who are... So, so answer sheets to one of those three people. Um, and there is a, a Raytheon challenge going on as well, and, and the winner of that will receive a £50 uh, Amazon voucher. The, the society offers free uh, student affiliate membership to people who are in full-time education in, uh, involved with aviation and aerospace. There are leaflets for that at the registration desk, so if you're interested in, in joining the Society as a student affiliate, pick up a leaflet. Um, this afternoon, there's going to be a question and answer session uh, with all the speakers this morning, joined by a couple of other people. We'll introduce them all uh, before that. Uh, but start thinking about questions for, for the question and answer period. Um, I was asked um, during the break why it's called the Ballantine event. I should have said that right at the beginning. Um, we have quite a number of events here throughout the year, something like over 70 events. Many of them are named after uh, famous pioneers of aviation, like the Wright brothers uh, and so on and so forth. This particular event is named after a man called Archie Ballantyne, who was the, uh, as it was known then, the secretary of the society. We would call it today the chief executive uh, for quite a long period from 1951 to 1973. So that's why it's called the Ballantyne Lecture. And the final thing I'll say is there's, there's quite a bit of time uh, over lunch, uh, nearly an hour and a half, um, as well as entering the challenges and, and, and having a go possibly on the, um, the uh, pilot selection simulators, do talk to as many people around. All the, all the speakers will be around at lunchtime. They're here for your benefit, so take the opportunity to, to talk to them privately, ask them questions, 
and, uh, and so on and so forth. Right, um, that's a lot of information. Uh, the most important thing is up the stairs to lunch, and the second most important thing is to be back here for 25 past one, please. Okay, thank you very much. other people are going to take part in the panel to uh, find yourselves a seat on the stage. And I hope we've got enough uh, seats. It doesn't really matter. (coughs) Dallas, do do you want to go at the end here, Dallas, and we'll... And you can go last. Is that everybody we're expecting? One more. Yeah, two more. We're going to need some more chairs. There's more of them here than there are down Right, I think we're just about there, so we will make a start. This is your panel, so uh, there's an awful lot of expertise up here um, on the stage with people at various points in their careers, so, so uh, make good use of them. I, I'm going to ask the panel to introduce themselves. What, I, what I'm going to do is to ask the... Um, just go along the line, starting at the far end. For this morning's spe- speaker's just briefly to remind people who they are and what they do. Um, And for the four people who are joining the panel, um, that is uh, Tracy Curtis-Taylor, Dallas Campbell, um, Stephen Farnsworth, and uh, Anne Wormsley, to say a little bit more about themselves. And I know that uh, BBC presenter Dallas Campbell's got a couple of video clips, so he will, will go at the end. Um, now, Stephen uh, Farnworth is uh, an airline pilot with uh, all Nippon Airways, and uh, I'll let you say, uh, him introduce himself. 
But I know that at least one person has asked me how you go about being uh, a, an airline pilot, how you get into that. So at some stage in the questions, uh, not, not right now, but at some stage, I'd like you to, uh, to talk about that. So sure. would you like to start introducing yourself? Yeah, sorry, it's Stephen Smart. Sorry, yeah, I think it's a typo there. Oh, sorry, uh, wrong name? Uh, smart. Smart. It's, it's Stephen. Sorry, right. Uh, yeah, Important as uh, the President said, I'm flying uh, for A&A based in Tokyo. I've uh, been there a year and a half, flying 767s. Uh, before that, was five years in Ryanair. And before that, was a completely different career working in the Metropolitan Police. So this is a second career for me, but that's me pretty summed up. I'll have to Hi, my name's Anne Wormsley. I'm an electrical engineer on the Ministry of Defence Graduate Scheme. Small issue. Do you, do you want to try and bring the microphone a little bit closer and then yeah, yeah. So just a little bit? Ah. I've worked on the Typhoon Safety Team, on the Watchkeeper Team, and the Medium Range Air Defence Team. And I'm currently working at the RAES on the Schools Builder Plane Challenge. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Parker. I work at uh, Reaction Engines Limited, and uh, I work as a designer. My, my main work at the moment is uh, laying out the Sabre engine. Uh, my name is Tracy Curtis-Taylor. I fly vintage aeroplanes. Um, I'm a bit of a maverick in this crowd in the sense that I, I, didn't, um, I didn't go to university. I just left school with four A-levels. Uh, I had my first flying lesson at 16, and I funded my way through my own licenses. So I did a private license, a commercial license. And all this was actually done in New Zealand. But the, the, the most critical and defining aspect of my flying career, I joined the New Zealand Warbirds. I was very interested in historic aviation. And really, that's all I've flown ever since. So it's been an unusual career. I sort of you know, ended up instructing for a few years, but really got into air shows, display flying. And then last year, the culmination of about 25 years, um, I flew solo from Cape Town back to England in an open cockpit Boeing Stearman biplane, which was recently screened on BBC4. And, of course, I'm going on with that aeroplane, you know, in the same fashion. So I'm the sort of romantic heritage aspect of aviation. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Mike. Uh, Mike Hange and I am on the Raytheon Graduate Scheme. Hello again, everyone. Uh, Flight Lieutenant Stefan Borval. Uh, I'm a, a student instructor on 29 Squadron at RF Coningsby uh, and a frontline Typhoon pilot in the Royal Air Force. Josh Gallagher at Raytheon UK, based up in Broughton, Cheshire, um, working on the Sentinel and Shadow um, maintenance modification team. Luke Jones, uh, third year Raytheon apprentice, uh, same as Josh, uh, based in Broughton, working on uh, Sentinel and the RR project. Uh, hi, so I'm, D I'm Dallas Campbell, and I'm a BBC uh, science broadcaster, and uh, I, I also have imposter syndrome sitting amongst such fantastic experts. I cover a huge range of, of science subjects for the BBC, but I suppose my particular interest is the aerospace industry. Um, my father was a pilot. I grew up around planes. Um, I've had two flying lessons in my life. One was on the 1902 Wright Brothers glider, and my second one was in an A380. So, I've, so I've had. Uh, um, actually, I chucked a hawk about a bit. I've done. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've sort of topped and tailed the, the entire uh, history of flight. And they asked me. Uh, the um, uh, society's asked me to sort of show a couple of videos. I actually was in Washington D.C. Uh, today I just got off a flight, um, and so I've been quickly putting together a few slides. This is what I was doing. Actually, I was working um, 
on another engineering story, which I thought just might be interested. I'm, I shouldn't be actually showing you these pictures because they're embargoed, but, I'll, but don't tell anyone. Uh, I was doing some work restoring the uh, Apollo moon suits. That's uh, Charlie Duke, Apollo 16's moon suit, and I was working with a team at the Smithsonian who are doing some extraordinary work making sure that these suits uh, are preserved because they were built, these suits were one of these great engineering problems that the <coughs> Apollo um, project encountered. Uh, we can talk at length about that, but the suits are very, very important and an often forgotten bit of the story. Um, they were built to withstand, obviously, temperature and heat and radiation, but they weren't designed to withstand time, and time has taken their toll. The, the rubber bladder, which Steph will know, um, it's De- Stefan, it's, it's Steph, will know all about, because they are precious suits, uh, has started to get very, very brittle, and there's all kinds of problems. So we've been working with them. So this is Charlie Duke's suit. Uh, this is um, <coughs> Linda Young, who is an incredible woman, who is in charge of this uh, project, looking after these suits. Um, one of the things we always talk about, talking about science and engineering, are there are not enough women in science and engineering. This is something we can talk about at length. Um, the story of the Apollo suits is uh, very much a story about women. Uh, when they were being made, uh, they took the entire production line of Playtex, who used to make bras and girdles and underwear, and these incredible seamstresses who used to sew all these together, and, and stuck them uh, making these uh, fantastic suits. And when you actually go and, and work with them, they are all covered still in moon dust. They haven't been washed. Obviously, they haven't been touched. So you can get this, you get this incredible, well, incredible sense of history, but also this amazing smell. Um, and I've been incredibly lucky because nobody, nobody ever gets to touch these or see these, really. They're, they're sort of locked away. These are uh, Captain Gene Cernan's overboots that he actually walked on the moon. That one that's lying down, his left boot was the boot that made the last footprint on the moon back in 1972. And we were very lucky to be able to study it uh, in great detail, and uh, that's it. But you haven't seen this. If, I, if you tell anyone, I would have to kill you, obviously. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. So I'm slightly jet-lagged as well. Um, there's a couple of, um, couple of uh, little, very, very short clips that I wanted to show you that sort of show some of the things that I've covered on television uh, to try and uh, get across just how exciting science and engineering can be, particularly in the aerospace industry. Uh, this is a vintage plane, so you may be interested in this. This was a little quotation that I think we'll hear in a moment. But this is, uh, this is a little clip about where it all started. If we can uh, play this, yeah. Today, billions of us can travel across the planet in a matter of hours. But that everyday miracle started in a rather humble way. On the 17th of December in 1903, on this very sand dune, two brothers made a a journey that was going to change everything. They were trying out this radical new form of transportation that was going to give us the power to travel further than we've ever travelled before. And the distance they made on that day was extraordinary. 120 feet. I know it doesn't sound very far, but that 36 metres triggered a whole century of innovation. Those two men were the Wright brothers. And the invention they're known for is the aeroplane. But it wouldn't have been possible without this, the glider they built the year before. 
Until they cracked how to ride the wind and steer through the breeze, no one could begin to conquer the skies. The Wright brothers achieved this in such a simple way that apparently even I should be able to get the hang of it. There you go. The canard wing in front controls going up and down. against the wind by twisting them. Come on, try shaking your whip. Think I'll try the other way. There you go. And this is warping. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put a rudder on the back. Yeah, that's a good direction. This is an exact replica of their glider. Excellent. And I can just imagine how they must have felt. Nose up. Excellent. Nose all the way up. It's this glider that makes all those airplanes we fly today possible. This was the moment we unlocked the secret to human flight. It launched a dramatic revolution in the way we move around the globe. And that helped transform our planet. Just interject before the yeah, next one. Yeah. That is incredibly important. Uh, the reason the Wright brothers were first was that they realized control was everything, and they spent three years mastering control. The other thing is you'll have seen <coughs> some black and white photographs there. Wilbur Wright was an incredibly good photographer, and there's a whole series of photographs you can actually buy which are quite evocative of their, their glider trials. I've got two hanging on wall at home. And what's interesting is it was my wife who chose them because they're such beautiful photographs rather than me. Sorry, just no, no, to throw that, that in. Actually, on that point, on the number plates in that particular state, it always <coughs> says first in flight. And I always wanted to change it because it's not, it's not about flying, it's about control. It should be first in controlled flight. Anyone who flies an airplane understands the principles of flight through that particular glider. And the, the, the extraordinary thing is that that's 1902. So it's only just over 100 years. And we've gone from, from that to, well, going on, the moon, going on the moon. That was, you know, 69 to 72 and beyond. Uh, my next little very short clip I'd like to show you is, about, is, is sort of beyond, if you like. It's sort of where we are now. Um, a, slightly different, um, a slightly different story. It's a story about commuting. But I think it's, a, again, a bit like this, a, a very important story to tell um, and I'll maybe talk a bit about that afterwards. Yes, if we could go. Yes. Everyone, get up, go for a little jog with my Labrador. Take my very obstinate Jack Russell for a walk, and then I usually am scurrying around the house trying to get ready. Like many of us around the world, Sunita Williams is a regular commuter. It's 7.30 in the morning. On the way to work, everybody's going to school, everyone's going to work, and... Uh, it ends up, for two miles, it ends up taking sometimes about 15, 20 minutes just because it's busy. But luckily there's a Starbucks on the way and uh, a collapse there, so it's nice to stop sometimes and get breakfast on the way. 
But sometimes Sunny has to work out of town. And for that, she takes a ride on this. I'll be launching and going up to the International Space Station and I'll be spending probably about four months up there. Captain Sunita Williams is an astronaut. In just a few days, she's going to fly on board the Soyuz rocket to her new office. That's a journey of 250 miles straight up. The trip to space itself takes just nine minutes. That's half the time of Sunny's regular commute. Something that the Wright brothers would have thought utterly unbelievable. say just within the aerospace industry within science and engineering there are the most extraordinary opportunities for people in all different areas um, and it doesn't matter about your background whether you're whether you're male or female it's a fantastic industry uh, to, to be working in um, because especially now I think because there are these extraordinary um, problems that we need solutions to and all these particular uh, problems, the problems of getting into space now, are starting to change as the world changes. We just heard from reaction engines a little earlier on. It's quite interesting sort of hearing your talk and looking at Soyuz back there. I mean, Soyuz, that particular rocket, in fact, that very, very platform was the same platform that Yuri Gagarin went into space from back in the late 50s. So, you know, in terms of us getting into space, we need new solutions, and those solutions are starting to come on online there. Um, where I'm sitting... Uh, it's not like going to NASA. I don't know if anyone's actually witnessed a, a shuttle launch. I, I was lucky enough to, to see a shuttle launch. Um, in Kazakhstan, they let you very, very close when the, when the rocket goes up. I mean, literally, you can sort of touch it. And, they, and I said, well, we, we, we want to film. We, 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 you know, we'd spent a lot of time working with uh, Sunita Williams, and we wanted to film her launch. And they were like, well, you can put the cameras wherever you want. We don't mind, as long as you don't break the rocket. They were, they were, very, they were very nice. Um, so this is, a, this is a photo that I actually took of, of, of the launch, and I'm about 200, well, actually less, but about 150 metres away. And I, I filmed it as well. We actually lost two cameras, and we melted two cameras. But the one bit that did survive was the microphone, and that's a story in itself. But I just want to play you. Just we were talking about, you know, we were talking about how rockets work. So just have that, have that in mind. That's Sunita on top, of, uh, on top of the rocket there, going up to the ISS. <laughs> This is what it sounded like. Could you play it and turn it up nice and loud? Because it's, it's just it's worth hearing because it's a beautiful thing. That's the fuel injectors kicking in.
rocket at 150 meters or so, which uh, and it sort of blew us off our feet. And we were like, at the end, we were like, whoops, I think we might have been. Anyway, so that's it. So I just wanted to share that with you. So, yeah, so I, I cover a whole wide range of, uh, of, of subjects. So, and please feel free to, to ask me anything. Um, if, if you want to talk about pressure suits, I can bore you for England at the moment. So, you might want to keep off that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Right, for, for the uh, questions, we've got what, two roving microphones, so if you indicate you want to give, uh, uh, ask a question, um, wait till you've got the microphone, just uh, say who you are and then, and then ask a question. But can we start uh, with that question about, you know, how do you become an airline pilot? Maybe, Stephen, you'd like sure. to. Um, there's many different ways, as you've probably, uh, looking at the media and various websites, um, I can tell you about the way I did it. Um, as I said, it was a second career for me. Um, I had done my PPL when I was 17 out in America, uh, where my sister was instructing, so that's why I was able to finance it. We did nearly kill each other several times, but I did get my PPL out of it. Um, I went and joined the police here in London. I did that for about six, seven years. Uh, I'd always wanted to do the flying. It was on, off, and I decided now was the time. That was in 2006. Uh, took a remortgage on my house took a career break from my job uh, two years went to Oxford Aviation did my integrated ATPL uh, finished that in August 2008 by May 2009 I'd started in Ryanair I did in the end five years in Ryanair and then an opportunity came up for me to take this job in Japan where I am at the minute and for the last year and a half been flying out there so that's just one way of doing it uh, you fly with many different people and each different person has their own route or way they've done it to get there. There's no set route in stone. It's how the way and the way you want to go about it that suits both your finances and what you want to do in aviation because it's not just commercial aviation. There's loads of different aspects of aviation, as you can see. So all I can say is there's numerous ways to do it. I can just tell you about mine, really. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, Katrina Rush of uh, Raytheon is going to join us on the stage. Are you, Katrina? Please. There's a chair here. Chair for you. Right. First, first question, then, please. Hello, I'm Eleanor Rustagova. I'm a student in Year 13. I have quite a specific technical question for Richard Parker. Um, well, it's quite odd. It's not. Um, I was wondering why the engines, the reaction engines, are curved as opposed to being just straight. This is um, it's, it's quite a fun question that we always seem to get asked about the, and it's got a very specific technical answer, which is that because the vehicle has a low wing, uh, and you're flying in a vacuum when you're in space, the thrust vector needs to point through the centre of mass of the vehicle. So low wing means the nozzles have to face downwards. And the other thing is that because the wings need to be inclined upwards towards the incoming air when the vehicle's flying in the atmosphere, the air intakes point downwards. So we just end up with that, that curve shape. Uh, from the point of view of a designer, it's a complete pain to have to lay everything on a curve instead of in a nice straight line. But, uh, yeah, for the, for the moment at least, the engines are curved. Thank you. Any more questions? Well, yeah. Right. One here? One here, Tom. 
Hi, Justine Marchand from Onzos and Tawdry School. Um, can I ask the lady from the Ministry of Defence what was her routine? A bit about her. Your routine, how did you decide that's what you wanted to do and how did you get to do it? Uh, well, I originally went to a military boarding college and they paid for me to go to university. So <laughs> so uh, that was my routine. I don't know if any of you would like to apply. It's called Wellbeck and it's for those who are starting A-level. But you can also join a defence technical undergraduate scheme if you're just about to start university and you get a £4,000 anniversary towards your degree each year. Um, this wasn't to anyone in particular, but I was wondering what's your favourite thing with working with planes or in engineering? Like, what's your favourite part of your job? Well, that's one for everybody. Um, <laughs> Katrina, do you want, would you like to start at this end of the line? <laughs> Favourite part of the job? I'll, I'll try and project a bit yes. louder. So, okay. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. A little crackly still. Okay, so uh, favorite part of my job? Um, I like that each day I go in and I don't know what it is that I and my team are going to be able to do to make a difference to the company. And I usually walk away at the end of each day and think, I think we did a pretty good job there. I sometimes wake, walk away each day and think, oh dear. Um, but mostly I walk away thinking that was great. And um, it could be really small things. So, so stuff that just keeps everything working. You know, when things work, people just don't notice and knowing that everything you did didn't disrupt anything else and made everything else good, then I think that's, that sort of serves a lot of us well. Your go. Uh, well, for me, it's quite simple. I, I obviously get extraordinary access to things and places that uh, people don't normally get extraordinary access to. That's one. The second one, probably the most important thing, is the fantastic and amazing women and men I meet within these industries who are just utterly passionate and extraordinary, and uh, I always come away thinking, oh, I want to do that. Um, uh, I, I don't think I've ever had a day's filming or a day's uh, yeah, filming within this particular industry, the aerospace industry, that I haven't come away being absolutely blown away. Right now, I'm, my head is all about the A7L and the A7LB uh, spacesuit, <laughs> but tomorrow it'll probably be something else. So, uh, yes, so that, that's for me. And also being able to share stories with, uh, with everyone else is a, is a great privilege. Um, I believe uh, the best part of my job is learning constantly and progressing my knowledge on the aircraft, and then after the, the job's been done and you see that aircraft fly away, knowing that you've worked on that aircraft and you've kept it in the, the state to be able to fly away is probably the best thing. My answer is pretty much the same as Luke. Um, I'll take an example, for, uh, for instance. Uh, did a, the engine that we work on is a turbofan. And uh, we changed the blade, we took, uh, took away the blades and we uh, did an inspection of the blades. And uh, personally, I put them all back into place on my own, little supervision. And then I signed on the piece of paper to say that that's safe to fly, and I actually watched it take off. And uh, to say the least, I was very nervous <laughs> indeed. 
be careful what I say, but yeah. But that was the job satisfaction for me to actually watch that, and especially when it landed as well, like kind of like a sigh of relief to say. But that's definitely, the responsibility is massive because I'm only 20 years old and the responsibility to watch with how many aircrew they're on board, like eight people on board, you know, their life is in my hands and for the, my name to be on that piece of paper to say it's safe, you know, very satisfying indeed. Uh, I like it when my plane lands safely. Uh, for a start. Um, no, I guess, um, you know, in my job, we, um, we have very busy sorties. We pack a lot in to get uh, as much training value out. And uh, quite often you, you just find yourself working very hard, uh, a bit stressed. Uh, I guess my, my favorite point in the cockpit, and I'm very jealous of those flying warbirds and, and other very pure machines, is those sort of quiet times where uh, I've had it at night where you find yourself on your own, up very high, looking down on the other air traffic. Uh, you can see shooting stars on your uh, MVGs. You get uh, some Elmo's fire crackling on the canopy. And it's those just little times where you're not working hard and you remember why, like you sat here, for those of you who want to fly, why you're here in the first place. So it's always, it's always quite special to see. I'd have to say my favourite experience is probably when you're trying to crack a problem for about two weeks, nothing has worked, and then finally it goes in the sight of a load of very clever people just absolutely losing their minds and running around an office, is genuinely wonderful to see. I think my defining experience of flight, I mean, I fly really basic machines, and it was really fun seeing that bit of footage at Kitty Hawk and to see something of what the Wright brothers achieved. But my inspiration was watching that film, those magnificent men in their flying machines. And that says everything you need to know. It's just early machines, everything is... Stick and rudder, it's, you know, warped wing to control the thing. So that, that's what motivated me to fly. So my experience now is open cockpit, I fly wooden fabric aeroplanes. I get out and I try and fly them huge distances just as a really as a tribute to those early pioneers who risked their lives to do it. But in this day and age of intense technology and, you know, the space age really, what I do is to try and remind people what the history of aviation was and this extraordinary engineering history and aerospace that we have in this country. So, so yeah, my finest moment, I think, is just being in the open cockpit, low level, experiencing, you know, just seeing the world at low level, the sensation of speed and freedom, and that is the essence of flight for me, so... Uh, well, for me, I would have to say that it's about being creative, um, being quite quiet, introverted type, I like sitting at my desk and working. And the things I'm working on is the, the layout of the, the engine. So I'm exploring, in a way, my own little bit of the unknown. Uh, the last time, well, the best example I can think of this is uh, back, back uh, about 200 years ago, people were trying to figure out how a, a railway locomotive would look. And these guys called the Stevensons came along and they said, OK, we're going to put the boiler here, we're going to put the pistons here and the firebox here. And nobody else had ever laid it out in quite that way before. And for me, the, the thing that makes me feel really excited about uh, laying out the Sabre is that that's not been done before. A, a pre-cooled air-breathing rocket engine has never been laid out before. So the question is, where does everything go? And, and I get to figure that out. So I, I feel really excited every day when I go into work because of that. I would say the best thing is that people in aviation have such a passion for the industry, and I don't think it's something that you get across other industries. I think humans are just inherently passionate about being able to fly in an aircraft. We've always been fascinated with it. So I think, yeah, people here today are an example of just 
the passion for the industry? Uh, for me, it's um, obviously, as we've seen, it takes a lot of people from to get a plane from A to B. Um, I obviously only have a small part in that. But for me, it's the trust and responsibility that yourself and the other crew member have for getting those people from A to B and the decisions you're left to make during that flight. So for me, it's just a great feeling to get someone from safely from where they want to go to somewhere else. So just for me. Right, plan B, we will keep the red uh, mic on the stage and use that. Uh, if, we, if you don't mind passing it to one another, and we'll use the one for questions. So, next question, please. Hello, um, my name's Paige, and I'm in year 12, and um, my dream job is to become a commercial pilot, um, but I'm aware that the field's really competitive. Um, is there anything that I could potentially do in particular to sort of get that competitive advantage or to stand out? Um, I'll feel that one, obviously. Um, <laughs> I would suggest, obviously, year 12, so do the best you can with the subjects you need to get good grades in for what you're seeing on selections for either uh, British Airways, Virgin, because obviously, as you can see, those schemes are very competitive. So the best thing you can do is get the best grades you can in the subjects they're looking for. Uh, just get an interest in the industry. Um, you know, Go to your local airfield, look at publications, look on the internet, see what's going on in the industry. You know, there's people who have the grades, but just turn up and say, this looks like a good number, I'll go for this. You know, show that you have an interest in the, in the, in the aviation. I would say, if you can, affordability, finance, maybe go for a flying lesson. You know, find out if you really, you know, people do get to a very late stage of commercial flight training and go, this isn't for me. And it's, you know, so, you know, do as much as you can at this stage with things like that to help yourself. And, you know, you may develop another interest in aviation that you didn't think before. Right, next question. And in the interest of equal opportunity, we'll have a boy this time. There's, there's, a, there's a hand going up here. Yeah, second row. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Chris the boy. Um, <laughs> um, this is for Richard. How much would it um, cost to get a space shuttle actually up into the atmosphere and back, roughly? Space shuttle? Uh, yeah. Uh, Dallas, sure, you probably sure. know this better than I do. Do you, do you mean Skyland? Yeah, mean, sorry. Because yeah. space shuttles, <laughs> we're, we're done with the space shuttle now. Oh, space shuttle what is it? Is it would so. you class it as a plane, then? Uh, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, in fact, the CAA are doing a lot of uh, work with us at the moment to, to figure out what sort of... Well, it's, it's an unmanned 300-tonne uh, yeah. Mach 5-plus rocket, so what category is that? Uh, a drone. Um, it's to sort of answer your question. Um, we reckon that a, a Skylon will get, set you back uh, about a billion dollars. Uh, the difference between a Skylon and another rocket is you can use a Skylon 200 times. So, the, in terms of development, uh, we reckon it's a development project on the same scale as developing the A380. Uh, I should know how much we, we costed the development program, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But we, we reckon unit costs for the first production run is about a billion dollars each. Okay. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Right. Ne next question. Hi, I'm Otto. I'm a year 12 student. This is for Richard again. Um, what, was, what was or what will be, do you think, the biggest obstacle you've faced for the Sabre engine? Uh, the biggest obstacle, I think, uh, and this is true for a lot of industries, is uh, 
getting people to believe that uh, what you're developing is going to work and, and attracting the investment. Uh, there's a lot of risk aversion, especially in, in larger organisations, and uh, for good reason, because a lot, it's very easy to throw a lot of money at a project and, and find out it doesn't work. So we know that the engine works. I, 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 I can guarantee to you, having looked at all the numbers, that it works on paper, uh, but it's going to take us a while to build one, uh, and we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, but finding backers who will get you past that and keep funding you uh, so that you can make all of those necessary mistakes. Uh, this is something, by the way, I think SpaceX do really well, is that they go out and they're quite willing to make mistakes and fail. Uh, and they know they're going to fail, but they realise as well that that's how you learn, that's how you make progress. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so that, that's the biggest obstacle, get, getting, uh, getting the confidence uh, people behind us. But I think we're making progress with that. One in um, another one for Richard. Someone else, please. Next. With a lot of other companies going into um, space exploration, like going to Mars and, and uh, hopefully going onto other planets, why did your company choose to go on to reinventing a uh, a shuttle instead of um, going to a different thing? Uh, getting into space is the bottleneck. Um, I, I, Alan Bond likes to say that once you're in Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. And that's, that's sort of true, that getting out of uh, Earth's gravity well is the difficult part. It's, it's the big challenge. And we, we've got evidence of all of these amazing things we can do with space. We can go to the moon, we can land on comets, we can land on Mars and drive rovers around. And I, I used to work in the space industry. Uh, the, the really depressing thing is the time scale because you need to wait for somebody to build your rocket. Somebody's got to fund your rocket. It's really expensive getting into space. And the reason for that is every time you go up, you have to throw the transportation system away. You build this rocket out of metal, and, and you just throw it away when you're done with it, and you have to build a new one. So what we're working on, we think, is, is the thing that's been holding the human race back in terms of space exploration. It's getting into Earth orbit. And once you're there, you can, you can get anywhere. And it's going to be interesting to see what people do with that technology once we've developed it. I should just add as well, I mean, that rocket there, that's, I mean, that is 1950s technology, and we haven't really moved on in terms of getting us into space since that. I mean, I mean that, when I say 1950s technology, I mean literally. <laughs> when you go to Baikonur to watch a launch, you are, it is agricultural in its basicness. So projects like this, and there was, I mean, NASA, back in the day, were thinking about exactly that type of thing and, and didn't, and sort of ended up going a space shuttle route which kind of has sort of not ended well. And there's all kinds of reasons why, why we could do that. But um, in terms of the reusable thing, um, a lot, both NASA and, and the ESA uh, are developing sort of return vehicles, more advanced return vehicles, having people back from orbit. But you're absolutely right about getting up is the problem. The Soyuz is reusable in that um, when it loses its stages and its trajectory and they fall to Earth, local farmers and herdsmen in the plains of Kazakhstan can, are allowed to grab the metal and use it to um, look after their cows and their sheep. And use it as, um, so it's reusable in that sense, but possibly uh, not a great, not a great, quite an expensive cow shed, ultimately. But the the uh, one thing that, a point of amusement for me is when I, I go to start looking at how do I lay out this rocket engine, 
uh, I get the latest, the most advanced technical knowledge that we've got on, on rocket engines. And these are usually reports that uh, uh, start with the words, the space shuttle will be. <laughs> Just to give you some idea. The technology hasn't really moved on since, since, since then because nobody's had to develop a new technology. Why would you develop a better engine if you're just going to throw it away? So, Can I interject a question for Tracy? Is, what's your next uh, great adventure or next challenge at the other end of the scale? Do you know, I have to be a bit careful with that. I'm just about to go public on it. Okay. But we're slightly premature. Give, so. us a little, give us a little hint. It's a we long won't, way. We, we won't it's tell. It's a flipping we long way. In an open cockpit biplane. A long, a long, a long it's way. It's about 13,000 miles. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I think I, uh, is that is that about, does that take you all the way around? Yeah. Nearly. Nearly. <laughs> nearly. Good enough. Okay. Ne next question, please. One more question for Skylon. <laughs> yeah, and then that's the last. And that, I'm sorry, that's going to be the last question for Skylon because we've got a lot of these amazing on the people sat here. You should be asking them. Go, go on. So, if SpaceX perfected their landing the launcher stage on a barge. What would the advantages of a completely reusable space plane be if you had a reusable rocket? Uh, the best answer I can give to that is uh, I remember somebody saying to me about 10, 15 years ago, what's the point of a digital camera? Because you know, film cameras are getting so cheap these days. Uh, why, would, why would I want a digital camera? <laughs> and looking back, why is it? Ballistic missile technology is, has got us this far, and SpaceX are doing some amazing stuff with it. But in my personal opinion, what we're working on is the next stage. It's, it's what's going to eventually supersede that technology. I think I'll give uh, Richard a break on that. Um, this one's for Stefan. I'm uh, Rob from John Warner, Year 12, and pilot myself. Um, you've obviously had a fair bit of experience and what quite a lot flying but what would probably be your most memorable experience uh, hi rob um most memorable experience uh, boy there's uh, there's been a few thank you there's been a few uh, uh, all through training uh, you, you scare yourself at times um while i've been an instructor i've i've had people scare me uh, a lot of times um i've had uh, yeah i've had people try and hit other aircraft in close formation and I've had people point at the ground. Um, no, for me, for me personally, I think the most, uh, the best fun and the most memorable time was the, the short time I had on the, the Harrier, um, just because it was, it was a bonkers plane. Um, I'm glad now I can, I can walk through a museum and go, you know, I, I had to go on that to my little daughter um, because it was just crazy. It was really good British engineering. Uh, it was phenomenal aircraft. Um, it was the right time for it to go, um, but just from a pure uh, flying perspective, you know that was that was a real achievement for me. And um, because it was such a uh, so highly held in my esteem to go there, you know, after the first solo, I, you know, that was a walking back from that, that was a big big step in my in my career. Right, can I ask Katrina to answer the same question? Most memorable time in. <laughs> in your career? Goodness. So, um, I, um, I, I remember having some surreal moments in my career. I, I was working for EMI Records. I was working uh, in the IT function, building lots of stuff for them to use. And I found myself at the Brit Awards, clutching my laptop, of all things, which is not the thing you should be clutching at the, at the Brit Awards. 
thinking, I'm not quite sure how I got here, but I'm definitely sitting here at the moment. Um, I remember the first time going on the Channel Tunnel and thinking, I actually built the software that allowed people to buy tickets for this. That's quite, that's pretty good fun. Um, and I think, to be honest, there's, there's lots. You know, you're the, One of the joys of, of certainly the, the type of uh, technical skills that I've worked on in my career is that I can apply them to any industry. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not stuck in any one industry. I can, I can look at lots of them and I can find something that my skill set can, can add value to and I can experience all of the, the intrigue and the interest of that industry. So I'm having a great time at the moment understanding the aerospace and the defence industry and, and really enjoying what I'm doing. And I, I did actually say, to looking at some of the graduates, I've had a lot of fun watching the graduates do their outward bound sessions, which is always entertaining, <laughs> as I stood on dry land this time. So that was quite good. But, you know, lots, I, I think. The whole point is, it's it is it is one big adventure. When you when you start on these paths, it's it's not as if I know what the path is. That's it. You start the path. You don't do that anymore. You do something else. That's one of the great pleasures and the great moments. I think. Do you want to ask that one? Because I think you've probably got a few as well. Uh, well um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Gosh, I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for quite a, quite a number of years now, and um, uh, yeah, I, I've got to do some pretty extraordinary stuff across all different areas like yourself um you've seen a couple of uh, this was a series i did called supersized earth and um if, uh, it was out a couple of years ago and if you haven't seen it it's worth it's worth watching i think the the premise of the series was how in a single generation one generation my generation since 19 i was born in 1970 it's hard to believe i know <laughs> um uh we we as a species have completely changed the planet, physically change the planet. If we were doing it for BBC Four, we would have called it the Anthropocene, which is this rather sort of clever word which people chuck about at the moment. But we didn't, because we were BBC One, so we called it Supersized Earth. (laughs) (laughs) But we got to do some pretty pretty amazing stuff. I got to sort of climb up the Burj Khalifa to the very top, and I went sewer diving (coughs) in Mexico City, and we filmed on the International Space Station, and did all kinds of stuff. Um, I did a I used to do a science series called Bango's a Theory, which was a BBC One science series. Some of you would probably might remember. We don't do it anymore, but you're of an age, you might remember it. And uh, the best thing I ever did um, <coughs> was, not the best thing, but my favourite thing I ever did was a time travel episode where we wanted to demonstrate time travel and how one can time travel. And so we made a film about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. And we, I went, got in touch with the... Um, the um, a National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, and we borrowed a couple of atomic clocks. And I'm sure some of you will know what an atomic clock is. These are cesium beam atomic clocks that are accurate to within a billionth of a second. So all time, really, on Earth is measured from these clocks. And we had one in Teddington, which is where all time on Earth is measured from. And I took another one, and I asked, I called up um, Air New Zealand, who very kindly lent me a triple seven. And I took my atomic clock. We had to remove I had to sit in first class as well, because the only plug they had was in first class. We had to keep it plugged in. So I'm like, oh, brilliant. And they gave me air miles as well. I shouldn't tell you. Um, so, uh, we, uh, so we took out a seat of, of the first class cabin of a, of a 777. We installed the cesium beam atomic clock. And then I circumnavigated the globe. I, I flew from London to Los Angeles to New Zealand uh, to Hong Kong and back to London in one go. I mean, obviously, we, we, we stopped for gas. And then I took my clock and ran back to Teddington. And lo and behold, the, clock which, the clocks which were once synced exactly to within a billionth of a second were slightly out. 
by about 250 nanoseconds, uh, a phenomenon called a time dilation, which is one of the results of Einstein's theory of relativity, both special relativity and general relativity, because we were further away from the gravitational centre of the Earth, and, um, and also we were travelling at speed. And that was an incredible thing, because when we think about big esoteric physics, particularly things like space and time, our brains haven't evolved to be able to sort of perceive them. However, technology and science and being able to measure things incredibly accurately has, has given us this extraordinary knowledge. And obviously, the time dilation, it sounds very esoteric and odd, but of course, your sat-nav wouldn't work without taking into account time dilation, and obviously rockets wouldn't work, and the space station wouldn't work, and the typhoon wouldn't work, and all these things rely on, on this knowledge. And that was, a pretty, um, that was a pretty special episode to make. Thank you. Is that, does anybody else in the panel want to talk about their special moment? Or? Not compulsory, but if anyone wants to grab the microphone. Okay, we'll take another question then. Um, hello, my name is Roman, and I'm a year 10 student. I have a question for Stephen, um, and that was, um, uh, why do Boeing planes have a yoke and a joystick uh, to control a plane, and Airbus only has a joystick? don't know if that should be fielded to an engineer, but um, <laughs> y- years back, Airbus went with the concept of fly-by-wire. They changed the whole concept of how they build their cockpits, the interaction between the pilot and the airplane. Um, over years, Boeing now with the 787 are using fly-by-wire, so it's the same technology. Um, just along the way, Airbus, with the ergonomics, have decided that they prefer the joystick on the side. Um, I have heard a story that Boeing pilots, Boeing voted or made a survey to Boeing pilots, and it was voted to keep the control stick in the middle, basically. Um, I, I've only flown Boeing. I can't comment on Airbus, but um, I know I, pref- I would prefer that. And I know it's been cited in the Air France 447, but we won't go into that. My dad was a Boeing man and couldn't understand the Airbus philosophy at all. You see, I'm quite cross about it. Some people are yeah, quite, yeah, quite, yeah, some people, yeah. I mean, irrationally angry. Yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah, well... Well, there is a purity about Boeing and, and, and the stick, yeah. as opposed to you know this is what you were saying about sort of technology. If you want the sort of purity of understanding, you know that makes sense. Whereas, I mean, I, I flew a Hawk, which is which is a which is a stick, and, and actually the MBA three eighty, which is stick, and it's it's more like flying a video, it's playing a video game as opposed to. But I'm more of a wing warping kind of guy. I'm more like nineteen eighty two. That's my stick. So that's how I uh, and a canard wing. I'm like that's the future. I'm going to tell you now, because that gives me the the cue to tell you about one of my most memorable moments. Um, I I was a navigator uh, initially on an aircraft called the Shackleton, which was rather like uh, a World War II bomber, four very large piston engines with contra-rotating propellers and two two jet engines to help us get airborne. And it had the traditional stick-and-yoke arrangement. The Air Force, in their wisdom in those days, thought that um, it would be a good idea to sort of pep up Coastal Command that we worked in by putting fighter pilots in as squadron commanders and flight commanders. Now, the only problem with that is that uh, although these people went through a full flying course on on the Shackleton, um, they were already very experienced, and they probably didn't pay too much attention to some of the theory. And... You know, if you've been flying an aircraft like the Hunter, which uh, most of them had, which was a delightful single-seat uh, jet fighter, 
that you really only had to think. You didn't have to move the controls very much. I've, I've flown in a twin-seat one, and it just went where you wanted it. Um, the Shackleton was a very large lumbering aircraft, and you actually had to use physical strength to, to pull all this around. Um, it was nighttime. We were doing a practice of night bombing uh, on a submarine on a, on a target being towed by a launch in the sea. Uh, we did that from 500 feet, pitch dark, and uh, the pilot shouted to, uh, we had our squadron commander flying with us, didn't normally fly with the crew, uh, and the first pilot who was uh, sitting in the other seat shouted to me, Bill, get up here and help me. And we were sort of teetering along in the edge of the stall with the squadron commander pulling the stick back as hard as he could to you know, make the plane climb but actually lose flying speed. And uh, the first pilot, the normal pilot in the crew, pushing as hard as he could on, on the yoke to try and stop from stalling. And I basically just threw my weight onto the yoke and pushed it forward. And we had a very interesting interview in the squadron commander's office afterwards when we'd survived. But you couldn't have done that with a side stick. <laughs> anyway, next question, please. But, Bill, that's what happened with that Airbus that went in off France. Abso absolutely, absolutely so. Absolutely so. And nobody recognized it was stalled. Yeah, absolutely. And those throttles, one was, you know, that's horrifying. Uh, I'm Rhys from St. Audrey's. I have a question for Steph. Do you believe that the RAF, or the MOD, should I say, has chosen the right variant of the F-85? <laughs> I knew somebody was going to ask it. Um, me personally, uh, no, no. Uh, in terms of a pure aircraft, anyway. So I think the, there's another variant which carries more fuel. Uh, it is simpler. Uh, it can carry more weapons, which is what every pilot wants. However, you learn quickly uh, with the military that there is a bigger picture in terms of UK defence. Uh, and when they make these decisions, um, they have to think about uh, the carriers um, and all kinds of other subsystems of defence. So although for me as a pilot, um, you know, if you came and asked me, I'd be like, no, I think we should go for the other version. Um, I can see why they've done it. Um, it fits in with, with UK defence. It fits in with our spending. Um, and it's just one of those airborne compromises that we'll make. Um, whether or not we'll continue down that path the whole time, I, I don't know. Uh, it's tricky to say. I don't get paid enough to make those decisions yet, uh, and I'm glad I don't. Um, but that would be my my honest gut answer. I think it'll be it'll have a good capability, um, similar to the Harrier. Um, it won't carry as much as the other variants, but in terms of general UK defence, uh, it's probably the right decision that they made. Okay, can, I, can I add to that because? Um, my last job in the Minister of Defence was uh, called Director of uh, Operational Requirements for Air Systems. So basically, I ran the team that was specifying requirements for things like that, and indeed, you know, for, for the F-35 a number of years ago. And the reality is, there are very few pure solutions to these things, certainly as far as aerospace is concerned, and I guess an awful lot of other engineering things, because they're all all sorts of other factors come crowding in and uh, demand that you make some sort of compromise for whatever reason. And actually, that's, that's part of the, rich, the richness of the job. You're probably cursing it at the time, but it, but it adds another dimension to people who are the designers, uh, uh, people who are making the decisions 
based on what the scientists and, and the technologists are telling us. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's in a guess, in a way, it's part of human beings' adaptability to be able to... It's very nice to go for a pure solution, but, but very often the pure solution will not work pragmatically or, yet, or there is an overriding political consideration, something that which, which, makes you, um, which makes you go for some sort of compromise. But, but actually, that's part of the richness of the whole, of the whole business. We can do it. Next question. Any, any over this side of the room? But, okay, one, one more here. Um, and then one over there. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. It's uh, very similar to the last question. And I was wanting to ask Stefan about what he thinks about the new aircraft carriers and if it was a good decision to put ramps on them instead of catapults. It, it kind of comes down back to... Um, why they went down the line of the aircraft for, for Lightning II that they did. Um, for me personally, I would love to be just like Top Gun, taking off on catapults. Um, if you ask me, I think it's really cool. Um, I don't know enough about the project to know why they went down that route. Uh, I, I imagine it's to do with industry, with the economics of it, and at what point they decided a ramp versus the, the aircraft and so on. Um, the Harrier was a, a, you know, a ramped aircraft, and it's a much simpler solution in terms of the, the boat. There's less to go wrong. Um, but catapults offer you maybe a better payload in terms of the airframe. You have uh, you know, aircraft that can bring back more to the ship, which is ultimately the issue. And the Harry often used to have to jettison bombs off, especially before they got the bigger engine, uh, which nobody likes to do. Um, so that's kind of uh, how I think about that. I, I'm not an expert, um, but that's kind of why they've gone down that route. I mean, I, I can add to that because... Uh, uh in days gone by, the, the catapults were powered by steam. Um, and you've got huge steam generators, and uh, basically uh, <coughs> you release steam into a huge piston that just drove along the ship, pulled the catapult. The, the modern technology is to use uh, electromagnetic catapults, and that was the alternative design, an, an electromagnetic catapult, if we'd gone for... Uh, catapults, cats and traps as it was called and at the time the decision was made and I know it flip-flopped but the, but the final decision was there is too much engineering risk in this and engineering risk equates cost and time and we can't afford that so the, that was really what influenced the decision it was, it was a question of overall engineering risk in the, in the, in the process of of designing and developing the uh, electromagnetic uh, catapults, because uh, absolutely fail safe. If you can't, you know that is the most crucial thing, apart from the aircraft and the weapons themselves. If you can't get uh, the aircraft airborne, so it had to, it had they had to work. Uh, question over there. Hi, I've got a question for Stefan. Um, what advantages do you get from? being an air cadet if you want to join the Air Force? Okay, so um, I think the real advantage, and it's whether, um, not even if you want to be into, in the military, it's whether you want to go into engineering, into any form of, of job at all. Um, the air cadets is a really good way of getting uh, things to talk about in your interviews, on your CVs. Um, so you're, you're flying, your um, uh, Duke of Edinburgh awards. Um, all of you are incredibly uh, intelligent kids, and I'm sure most of you are right up there with your your grades when it comes to applying for jobs. Um, me as an employer, or what I would imagine, is that I'm looking for the base level of grades, but then I'm interested in, in you as a person and what you've done uh, extra, what um, you know, uh, how you've gone about 
making yourself that little bit more competitive. And it goes back to, to your question. And the Air Cadets is a really good way, whether you want to be a commercial pilot or whatever, of just getting stuff under your belt. It's a good way to experience the world. You can travel, do all kinds of different sports. Uh, and I, you know, I'd recommend it to, to anyone, even if you're not interested in the military. And there's no, there's no bound to, to joining the military through the Air Cadets or any other cadets for that matter. Um, so that would be my, uh, my main uh, sort of point. I think yeah, most people probably agree with that. Good question. Right, we've time for one more question. Over there. Hi, just a quick question for the apprentices, please, for anything apprentices. Did you need any specific GCSEs? At the start, when we first started, it was just a basic five-star, uh, five-star flip neck. Five A starter C's, um, C being minimum. But uh, now they've ramped it up to they want straight B's and higher. And then even if you get A levels, that would be even better. Put you uh, in front of the competition, uh, the competitor. Um, I think with anything, it is down to the grades that you get. The higher you can get, the more you've got chance of getting in. Obviously, to the next level. Um, what we found, because uh, me and Josh both did a lot of work experience, and it, it, it's, it's, it relates to the question from before, uh, the more work experience you do, the more um, like insight you get to a company, so you can see what they get up to. Uh, obviously, you get your face seen by people who are obviously going to give out the jobs, so you get your face in there. If you, if you go back... More and more, they're obviously going to recognise you and be like, yeah, that's the lad that works hard. He comes here in his own time. And obviously they'll think, yeah, he's a good lad. We'll, we'll take him in. Or, or girl. It, it's not always boys. Um, <laughs> but uh, obviously, like for Hayley as well, she's not here uh, today, but uh, she's a girl in engineering and she does lo lots of talks, uh, obviously female females um, who, who want to get into it because it, it is predominantly a male-dominated environment, but uh, like like she does, she she gets she gets along with everyone, and uh, she got through uh, like a practice towards an apprenticeship scheme. I know many colleges and universities and that offer them, and I think obviously if you if you want to go into something like that, work experience. See if you like it. If you don't, then go somewhere else. Try try different companies, and then. Obviously, make sure you've got those grades to go with your enthusiasm and your knowledge and that, and then obviously it, it, it does look good. You'll, you'll get further, I think. Right, thank, thank you. you. I think that's been a really good uh, question-answer session. Uh, thank you for all the questions, but more especially thank you to all the speakers and panellists. Thank you very much. I don't know if all the uh, panellists would like to uh, take places as uh, seats down in the uh, auditorium. And then we are going to now have uh, present the prizes. Uh, Katrina, would you like to stay with me? Sorry. You know. uh, yeah. uh, right. Yes, right, right, right. Uh, Roz? Oh, yeah. I think Roz has got the names. Thank <laughs> you.
<laughs> okay, great. So um, hopefully a lot of you had a go at the Raytheon uh, challenge. Yes, anybody who had a go? Just give me a sense of how many. Okay, good, good. We like to do challenges. We're a company that likes to set up lots of challenges and, uh, and lots of virtual games about how we work and how things operate. Uh, it's all part of getting people really involved. Um, so we have a winner for the Raytheon Challenge. Now, I, you have to, I will apologise if I got this, the pronunciation of this wrong, but it, it looks like it says Sky Green. Right, well done. Thank you very much. Oh, will do. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.